This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Talk Radio 77 WABC. Now, here's Frank Morano. forgotten it was our last show of the week. Matt Blaze has reminded me. Normally, 75% of the hours of this show begin with Metallica's Enter Sandman. Much like Mariano Rivera or Billy Wagner or Tom Likas, I enjoy coming in with Enter Sandman. And uh, Matt Blaze had the, the idea to mix it up and have all these different versions of Enter Sandman once a week. I um, didn't know there were this many versions of Enter Sandman, quite frankly, but apparently there are. I am digging this version, though. Matt Blaze, what is this? This is Weezer, the famous for Beverly Hills oh. and the Buddy Holly, and this is Weezer doing Enter Sandman. That is pretty cool. I am digging that. All right. Uh, last show of the week. You know what that means this hour. That means it is time for... The Other Side of Midnight proudly presents Ask Frank... Ask Frank anything. Ask Frank anything. Ask Frank anything. Ask Frank anything. All right. That means here we are. Last show of the week. And you will control everything that we hear. And for the next hour... I will take your questions at 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. Please just make sure they are questions. Please make them original. Please make them interesting. They could be on any subject. They could be about apples, Atlantic City, baseball, cocktails, cinema, uh, proportional representation, anything and everything. If I sit here and get an hour's worth of questions about a debate that's more aptly on a reality TV show that consists of eight people that will never be present in the United States, I am going to scream. And I can't imagine what uh, Matt Blaze and uh, and the other guys are going to do in their Darker Side of Midnight podcast. Now, in order to sweeten the pot, in order to incentivize you to come up with an original question, a creative question, a different question. And I'm looking at you, new first-time listeners, because our audience is expanding all the time, thankfully. We are going to give a prize from our Other Side of Midnight online store to whomever comes up with the best, the most interesting, the most original question at 800-848-9222. How is that determined? That is determined not by me but by our illustrious support staff here of Matt Blaze, Kevin Bunk in the Kenneth chair, and uh, Elias of the Elias Sports Bureau. You, don't mind, you didn't mind that I mentioned your last name there, Mr. Bunk, do you? No, not at all. And that's not a real name either. That's like a Matt Blaze kind of a thing? I couldn't tell you the truth whether it was or not. Uh, very good. I respect that. I will respect your privacy. 800-848-9222. Let's get started. Hello, Larry. Frank, simple question tonight. Excluding Joan Hamburg and Cindy Adams, mm. have you have you secretly, whether it's on air or behind the scenes, the last couple of years, have you had a secret cu- crush on any 
women. Secret crush. Well, um, in terms of women that work here now, there are not that um, not that many. But um, I would um, I would say I wouldn't say a crush. I would certainly say there have been a number of women that work uh, that have worked here that I think are uh, very attractive. Uh, Juliet Huddy comes to mind. Uh, Lauren Conlon certainly comes to mind. Jacqueline Carl comes to mind. I, I'd say those three uh, are the f- three that most immediately come to mind. I don't know that I could think of anyone else. Frank, thank you. Thank you. 800-848-9222. And I'm looking at this call board now, and I'm going to get to everybody. There are way too many Trump questions. Please, if you are curious about anything other than Trump, please call in. I'll get to all your questions, but I am going to just gag if I have an hour's worth of Trump questions. 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. Vito is on Staten Island. Hello, Vito. Hi, how are you? Good evening. Uh, I was listening to the Rudy Giuliani show this morning, and there was an interesting question proposed to him by a detective, Nolan, and that was, should President Trump select Tulsi Gabbard as his vice president? And if he does, would you reach out and ask her about it? Well, I would love that. I mean, I don't know that uh, I don't know that he uh, he would and I don't know that she would do it, although she might. If somebody offers you the vice presidency, a tough it's a tough thing to turn down. I think it would be well. one. I'm very fond of Tulsi Gabbard politically. I wish she was running for president. I'd vote for her for president. But um, if she was running for vice president, you know, I, I may vote for Trump. But I if Tulsi was his running mate, my enthusiasm for voting for Trump would go from tepid to incredibly enthusiastic. She is a perfect pick. And you know what? I think that there's a chance. Hawaii is a blue state. It it always goes blue. But Tulsi Gabbard still is popular in Hawaii. And I think if he were to put Tulsi Gabbard, that might potentially put Tulsi Gabbard into the uh, Trump column. So I think that uh, I think it would be a great pick. I am not holding my breath. Though I don't think it's going to happen. The things that she's said about him, about uh, his relationships and Jared Kushner's relationships with Saudi Arabia, the things that she's called for in terms of uh, not prosecuting drug crimes, the things that she's called for in terms of universal health care, the fact that she was a Bernie Sanders supporter. I think it would be very tough for the RNC to swallow all that. But you never know. Stranger things have happened. This is I'd love to see some sort of a unity ticket. You know, Lincoln picked a, a Democrat as his vice presidential running mate when he ran in 1860. And we've seen this a couple of other times throughout history. I would love it. I am not holding my breath that it will happen. 800-848-9222, 800-848-9222. Brandon is in New Jersey. Hello, Brandon. Hi, Frank. Uh, let's say Mattel uh, wants to give Barbie a new uh, guy to play with. And somebody says, hey, what about that superstar Frank Morano? How would you want the uh, the doll to look? It was a clothing, your facial expressions, and uh, say you get a accessory or two. Oh, um, so my facial expression would be kind of my typical, uh, my typical just uh, upbeat smile. Um, I, I'd obviously have to insist upon the the gray streak, which is only gr- getting larger in my hair. In terms of um, clothing and an accessory or two, I am. 
you know, this is a little less true during the summer, but I am wearing a bathrobe most of the time. So I think it would probably have to have a bathrobe. And as far as an accessory goes, uh, my go-to accessory during the winter months is usually a pipe. So I would love it if he had a pipe, right? So I think that would be so much fun, a Frank Moreno action figure or figurine with a bathrobe and a pipe. That'd be awesome. Gray streak in my hair. I'd love that. 800, Mattel, if you're listening, this could be a, a million dollar idea. 800-848-9222-800-848-9222. Igor or Igor in the state of New Jersey. Hello, Igor. Yeah, greetings, Frank. Uh, it, it, the uh, question I have for you is about the mugshot of Donald Trump. What, what do you think he's trying, what message do you think they're trying to get across with his facial expression? And if you were advising him and his campaign and knowing what the image might be used for on both sides for the future, what kind of facial expression do you think you would tell him to have during that mugshot? You know, I'm actually going into this next hour with our midnight panel that's going to be here. But I think he should have smiled, right? I think he should have sat there and smiled widely like he didn't have a, a care in the world. The two best mugshots that I've ever seen, not in terms of humor, which that goes far and away to Larry King, or to coolness, which goes far and away to Frank Sinatra. The two best mugshots I've ever seen are when Tom DeLay, the former House Majority Whip, was arrested, and when Rick Perry, the governor of Texas, was arrested. And they looked like, it looked like a campaign photo. They're smiling widely, and it didn't look like they had a care in the world. So I would have loved to have seen Trump do that. I mean, it's a little too dark and brooding for my taste. I I think people already think, there's a lot of people in this country that already think Trump is very dark. I don't know that, um, I don't know that he needed to reinforce that by kind of that stoic non-smile. He's got, you know, when he wants to smile, he look like he's having a good time, he's got a great smile. I don't know why he didn't uh, show it off, but I'm sure there was some strategy to it. 800-848-9222. Eric is in Manhattan. Hello, Eric. Hey, Frank. Um, well, can't the campaign put out any version of the, like a smiling version, just, you know, like any version they want? But well, anyway, I mean, no, but that's the mugshot, right? Yeah. So thanks, Eric. Gary is in Inwood. What's your question, Gary? Good morning, Frank. My question is you expressed the fondness for ventriloquist last week. In your opinion, the least and most talented in the profession? Oh, I don't know. I don't know that I can really. I enjoy watching ventriloquists, but I don't know that I could really name many ventriloquists at all. The uh, TV show America's Got Talent has had some uh, very good ventriloquists over the years. Um, I don't know that uh, I don't know that I could name any, honestly. So I I, I think it's kind of cool. I think it's very cool, but I just don't know. Uh, the names of a lot of them. So 800-848-9222, 800-848-9222. Kevin in Brooklyn, what's your question? Hello, Frank. How you doing? Great. What's your question? Frank, I want to ask this question. The Republicans are always hollering about states' rights, right? But then when Donald Trump get convicted, they uh, want the government to take the case. But you're the same uh, Republican that always complained about how how bad the government is. Right. So, what's your question exactly, Kevin? That's the question. I, I don't. Know, I still don't know what you asked. What what is, what is the question? The question is this. All right. How are you going to complain about 
by the government, right? But she wanted the government to take that case. Well, I, what what case? Um, the the case in Georgia. Well, because there's uh, there's a law that says if you're a federal officer and you're uh, prosecuted by a state official or arrested by a state official, then that trial takes place in federal court. We saw this in the era after Brown versus Board of Education when uh, federal civil rights workers were being arrested for mm-hmm. trying to enforce Brown versus Board of Education. So if the yeah, but if, Frank, Frank, yeah, but yeah. but well, okay. but they always talk about state rights. Right. They, they don't well, want the government right, to never do but, nothing. Right, but that's the law, right? So uh, now, uh, you're not, I'm not a Republican, so you're not going to get an argument from me that Republicans are hypocritical on the issue of states' rights. They certainly are. You saw that during the Bush administration when uh, they were trying to push a national ban on gay marriage, which uh, flies in the face of states' rights. You see it now with abortion, where they're trying to push a national abortion ban, which flies in the face of states' rights. But the law is clear. That if you're arrested as a federal officer for doing your job, that trial takes place in federal court. That's been the law for quite some time, and it's very clear. So I think, uh, at least in the case of Mark Meadows and Donald Trump, the trial is very likely to be moved to federal court. And I don't think that is a violation of uh, of states' rights at all. Chris is in New Jersey. Hello, Chris. Frank, how are you, brother? I'm doing great. That's the easiest question I've gotten all day. Yeah, no, I listen. Have you thought about Carmen's future or job-wise or, like, you know, plumber, electrician or trades or, you know? Well, I'd love that. I mean, he uh, he ha- seems to have a fun – so I, the answer is yes, I've thought about it, but I'm not going to project – any desires of my own onto him. If he wants to ask my guidance in terms of any career or anything like that, he's certainly welcome to it. But I, uh, I would love for him to go into a trade, carpenter, electrician, plumber, anything like that. I would be thrilled because I see what all those people cost, and I think he would probably give his old man a little bit of a deal. But aside from that, it's a great way to make money. And uh, I, I, you know, he has a real fondness for trucks and buses i don't know if every 21 month old does but uh, who knows maybe he'll end up being a bus driver where there's a um, there's a big there's a big bus driver shortage right now as well 800-848-9222 uh, you know let me take a quick break we'll continue with your questions in just a moment this is the other side of midnight straight ahead the Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org. Queen, Fat Bottom Girls. Those of you that are talk radio fans may remember this was Lynn Samuels' top of the hour theme. But uh, this is apparently the latest song to be somewhat canceled. The legendary rock band Queen 
found itself in the middle of this culture war as Universal Music announced it would be sharing a number of music titles for these greatest hits album that they're putting out and this song was left off of it and a lot of people speculate that's because it talks about people being fat or something along those lines all right uh if you are curious about anything now's the time to call in at 800-848-9222 let me say hello to alex in brooklyn what's your question alex Hey, Frank, thanks for taking the call. I got two short questions. Number one, Judge Jeanine Pirro, the first time I heard you on the radio was when you were filling in for her and you dropped her gavel. Mm-hmm. Do you know her personally? I'd like to know what her personality is like off the ear. Second question is the controversial one. Do you think if Putin would have been assassinated now, obviously it shouldn't be talked about by politicians, but behind the scenes, if that would happen, would that end the war? What would the ramifications of that be? Uh, so I've, uh, I wouldn't say I know Janine Pirro. I've, I've met her many times over the years going back to when she was Westchester DA. And uh, she's always very pleasant, very polite. She's got a great sense of humor. She's got great energy. She's always smiling. Uh, she's very nice. Uh, but we've never had a lengthy interaction of any sort. You know, we've never hung out individually, just the two of us. She doesn't call me to, uh, to, to chat. You know, she doesn't ask for advice. I don't run into her in the hallways regularly, but whenever I see her, uh, some, some, at some uh, event for the radio network, she's always super nice. Um, and then the question was if, uh, Putin is assassinated. Well, look, I guess it depends on who does the assassination. If it was a group that was hostile to Putin, I think that um, probably one of their guys would get in, maybe an Alexei Navalny type, who's one of the leading opposition people that's now in jail. If it was somebody that thinks Putin's too soft, um, more of a pro-nationalist type, I'm not sure who they would put in. But if it's just some rogue lunatic and Putin's regime, along with all the oligarchs that are in power, uh, remain in power, I think the person that they would most likely pick would be Alexei Duman, uh, who is uh, a governor in Russia, former chief security guard of uh, Vladimir Putin. He's very loyal to Putin. And obviously, Dmitry Medvedev is also a a potential pick. But I would think uh, Alexei Duman, he's a little bit younger. He's only 50 years old. And he's kind of got a level of Putin's toughness. They have a lot of the same friends, a lot of the same enemies. He's got federal experience, having worked as the, I think, assistant defense minister. And he's a governor now, so he's got uh, experience running something. I think that would be if it was not an adversarial, hostile transition I think he would be the most likely pick. All right, 800-848-9222, 800-848-9222. Steve is on Staten Island. Hello, Steve. Hey, Frank, how are you? Hey, Frank, just uh, real quick, uh, quick question. The question is, can you explain in, in Atlantic City the black machine that sits at the card table and they use that to shuffle the cards? Can you, can you explain to me... How you feel about that machine? Yeah, you're talking about the and and, and 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 let me explain to you what I know firsthand about that machine that the American people don't know. Are you you're talking about the electronic card shuffler? Yes. I'll be honest. I I just I never I never thought much about it. The only thing I ever thought about it was I'm glad that I don't have to wait when I'm playing blackjack for a dealer to sh- shuffle six decks by hand, and I'm glad we can start playing again right away. But fill me in. What were you going to say? That that machine sets the entire table up on on tables with no return card. 
when you say tell how many people are sitting at the table, but it sets the entire table and the game up as to who how many winners. There's going to be two seats at the table that win. Oh, and it's and, and it's and my sister was in surveillance for 35 years. You're kidding? Wow. And every time I see her, you know what she says? You're still trying to beat the black machine. I haven't been the I haven't been to a casino in probably. Seven to eight years, seven I, to nine years, I guess, maybe. I guess that's why some people prefer the uh, blackjack dealt by hand. I guess that makes sense. I'm not surprised. A casino looks for every advantage they can. All right, 800-848-9222. Russell is in West Virginia. Hello, Russell. Yes, first thing I want to let you know that one of them ventriloquists' names was Jeff Dunham. He's got them dolls, and they talk, and he talks with them. Uh, okay, yes, that sounds vaguely familiar. Okay, that's one I listen to. All right. Okay, and the uh, question I had was, do you think that we did good when we gave money to Ukraine? Well, I mean, look, I just think when we're borrowing money, when we can't even pay our own bills, that it's foolish to keep borrowing money so that we can give it to other countries. But that's what we do. We do it to uh, a bunch of countries around the world. So Ukraine's had a tough time, especially over the course of the last nine years. So I wouldn't begrudge giving them some money. I would have preferred that money to be humanitarian assistance. Things like food, medicine, blankets, materials to build shelter, uh, materials to build transportation infrastructure. Instead, we're giving them weapons. We're giving them weapons that they're using to fire against the nation with the largest stockpile of nuclear weapons in the world. What could go wrong? Oh, that's right. Everything. So my issue is not sending Ukraine money, although I guess it kind of is. But my issue is what we're the kind of aid that we're sending. We're sending lethal military aid. We're not, we should be sending humanitarian aid. That would have been my preference. But that is one of the many reasons that I am not president. 800-848-9222. Rocco, hello. Yes, good morning, Frank. Good morning. Hope you're doing well. Thanks. Um, I, I have a broken heart. Oh, and, no. and I happen to know, um, and this is regards to my mother passing away several months ago. She was my best friend mm. and my only family member I have, I have in this life. So I'm completely devastated. I want to know if you can give me some advice on how to heal it. That is a tough one. Uh, that is something that, uh, honestly, I wish I had a great answer for that because I would use that to assuage some of my own grief about people that uh, that I've lost over the years. I don't know. Um, I don't know that there's any magic solve for that I, or salve. I think the the two best things, uh, you know, one thing that everybody says, and I guess it's true to some extent is that time heals all wounds and that in time you, the hurt doesn't go away, but it becomes a little less visceral on a daily basis. But the, the other thing that I'd recommend, and I know this is easier said than done, especially when you're dealing with uh, being struck by grief, either because of the death of a loved one or you're depressed because of the end of a relationship or you're down in the dumps because you lost a job, the, the most important thing, and Arnold Schwarzenegger gets into this in his Netflix documentary because he lost lost his brother who he was very close to and his father who did uh, you know certainly shaped his life in in large measure very close to one another and he was able to get over it and this is his telling of it not mine by being busy if you can make yourself busy 
with either work, with hobbies, with volunteering, with uh, activism, with writing uh, or journaling. I really do think that think think that that helps. You know, they say idle hands are the devil's playground. Idle hands are certainly the plaything of negative emotions. And if you're busy, even if you have to force yourself, even if you have to force yourself to exercise for an hour a day or go volunteer at a soup shelter uh, for an hour a day, in time, I think um, staying busy does help. And it kind of gets you to that bridge of uh, getting to the point where you can you're not struck by grief where it's paralyzing but Rocco I, I, that's uh, you know I um I shudder to think what what happens when I lose either of my parents because I've lost some folks close to me and it still hurts so I, I don't know yeah. that uh, I don't know that I don't know that the hurt ever goes away Rocco yeah, I really appreciate that. I love you, Frank. Thank you so much for your your inspiration and, and advice. I'll take it to heart. Thank you, uh, Rocco. Appreciate it. Stay in touch. 800-848-9222. Sue is in the Queens. Hello, Sue. Yeah, I want to know, have you ever thought of introducing your son to Andrew Julie's little daughter, Gracie? Yeah, they've met. Uh, they met at a at a baseball game. They're they're about five days apart, and um, and also uh, my our friend Arthur Idala's daughter is only is only uh, five days apart from Carmine. So the three of them are about uh, are about fifteen days apart. And uh, cool. yeah, I as they uh, as they both get older and age together, I'm hoping they'll spend a lot of time uh, together. You know, Andrew Giuliani. And his wife are uh, both great people, and I'm sure that uh, that their daughter is going to grow up to be a great person as well. So uh, I, you know, they don't live super close to us, but I was actually just texting with uh, Andrew Giuliani yesterday, and uh, we were making plans to uh, get together for dinner or something. So maybe I'll encourage him to bring his daughter, and she could spend some time with Carmine. Okay. But it's a they're a great family, a really truly great family. Eight hundred eight four eight ninety two twenty two eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. Thomas is in Baltimore. Hello, Thomas. How are you? I'm doing okay. If you had an interview with Jesus and you were granted three questions, what would they be? Oh, that is a good question. Um, well, look, I don't think this is going to surprise anyone, but one of my first questions would be, how many questions do I get? Three. Three. Okay. One of my first questions would be, is there any anyone out there in the universe in terms of intelligent life besides us on Earth? Um, that's That's definitely, uh, I think, right up there. Um, two would be a kind of very personal, which is, uh, am I, am, what could I be doing differently in life, right? What could I be doing differently in life that will, um, ensure that I end up in, in heaven? And then look, the bane of my existence is mosquitoes and they're the deadliest animal on earth and i believe they should be eradicated and i think i'd have to ask the question why in the world did god create mosquitoes uh, an animal so deadly and so vile that they have tortured generations of humans i uh, that serves no purpose from what i can see so those would be the three off the top of my question now if i had a little bit more time to prepare i do like to prepare for an interview i would 
maybe give it some more thought. But definitely, those would be three I'd like to get in there. That's for sure. 800-848-9222. Neil is in Manhattan. Hello, Neil. Hi, Frank. Um, I'm ta- I like to ask about community service sentences. How, okay. What does that usually consist of? How real are they? Do, do people actually have to do them, or are they like no-show jobs? No. Uh, in my experience, uh, they are generally real. I mean, it's it's usually up to the judge, but there's a whole bunch of uh, different activities that they use. Like for a juvenile, a child that gets into some trouble for, say, damaging property or something, they might sentence the um, the, the child to service hours cleaning um, city parks or roads or public spaces. So, um, you know, that kind of thing. Sometimes it will involve... Um, you know, uh, going to an old age home and volunteering. Sometimes it'll involve uh, things of that nature. But no, in my experience, the uh, community service sentences are are real and people do do them. I um, I've known a lot of criminals over the years, many of whom have have gotten community service sentences. And I don't know any that just didn't do it. Eight hundred eight four eight ninety two twenty two. Steve is in Piscataway. It's that away. Hello, Steve. Uh, it's Pete, actually, Frank. Pete, well, uh, even better. Yeah, hi, Frank. You're a captain of the Enterprise. You just beat the Gorn. The Metro comes down and offers you the uh, the same uh, decision to make. Do you destroy the Gorn ship or let the Gorn ship go? Well, look, I think it's an unfair question because I've seen that episode of Star Trek and I saw how it worked out. No, I would absolutely... I would absolutely do what Kirk did. I would uh, spare his life, and I wouldn't wouldn't fight with him anymore. I wouldn't hurt him, and that's a degree of mercy that I try and exercise in my own life. Very, uh, you know, as a, whenever I have the opportunity to. Eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. George, what's on? What's your question, George? Hi, Frank. I have to commend you very, very highly for your absolutely correct usage of the English language. And, you know, especially when it comes to subtle points of, uh, you know, situations uh, that uh, uh, even the... George, I just want to get to as many questions as we can here. So what's your question? Okay. So my question is this. Have you in depth done grammatical studies? And has Rachel also participated in uh, assisting you? And how come uh, your English is pretty good grammatically speaking uh, compared to the others that I... Uh, find uh, uh, who make uh, uh, common errors. Well, I I have no idea. First of all, I think my grammar could be a lot better. Uh, My wife does help me when I write anything. Sometimes when I'll write, she's a writer. And so uh, a lot of times when I'll write an op-ed or something, I will uh, send it over to her and ask that she edit it a little bit. And boy, oh boy, am I glad that she usually says yes, because she does a shocking, um, she always is, alarmed at the number of commas that I have um, in, in my writing. So um, <laughs> I, I have commas where there's no business being commas. I uh, I don't know that my grammar is anything special, honestly. I make an effort, but, uh, you know, I guess that's all anybody can do. As far as why it might be different than what other people are doing, that I can't say. 800-848-9222. Ray is in New Jersey. Hello, Ray. Hello, Frank. Before I get to my question, I think I can answer why God or Jesus put mosquitoes on the earth. Would you like to know? Sure. Quickly, though. He put them there to bug you. Oh, that's a good one, Ray. Uh, Anyway, 
Okay, all the ancient stone structures around the world, some of them are mathematically precise. Uh, they're aligned with the stars. You know, uh, do you think that man built them alone with the machines they had maybe or alien help? And I'm going to take my answer off the air. Now. Yeah, oh, it's a great question, Ray. And I've done whole segments on this. And we've talked about the pyramids. We've talked about uh, things like Stonehenge. We've talked about other things. I think they're – and look, and uh, people think I'm nuts when I bring up this stuff. But there are similar structures that have been seen elsewhere, right, uh, meaning on other other places. So I think it is very possible that some sort of alien intelligence – played a role in in building these now it maybe not maybe not but uh and i'm not saying all of them but if you look at the uh, things like the egyptian pyramids or uh, i mentioned stonehenge or even a number of other structures easter island uh, you know it's not i don't think it's crazy to think that there was a civilization that was on this planet before we were and that maybe they also were behind something like the face on Mars. So, I, look, I'm not saying they built everything, but I think there's a chance that aliens might have had a hand in building some of these ancient structures. 800-848-9222, Neil is on Staten Island. Hello, Neil. Hey, Frank. Um, I just want to say to the man who lost his mother, the hurt never goes away. But as time goes by, the memories of your mother become more precious and comforting to you. That's good advice, Neil. Thank you. Okay. And as for that, uh, my question, uh, the mafia boss, uh, underboss, as he'll be speaking at Caesar's Palace, uh, he made a deal with Giuliani. He got 10 years. Uh, Do you think Giuliani will get more than 10 years? Well, he actually didn't make a deal with Giuliani. He um, he was actually, as he explained to me on the air last week, uh, Giuliani prosecuted him, but he was acquitted in that case. He took a deal. Michael Franzese took a deal in the Eastern District, and Giuliani was the uh, prosecutor in the Southern District. No, I don't see Giuliani getting uh, uh, getting any prison time, honestly. I, I think there would be such an outcry if Giuliani went to prison, even if he's convicted. Look, one of two things is going to happen. One, either, you know, Trump is going to be elected or he won't. If Trump's elected, Trump pardons Giuliani, no question about it. If any other Republican is elected, they're going to pardon Giuliani, no question about it. If Biden's elected, he has to see. And that's why I wish he would just do this now. He has to see the value. Now, I realize that's a state case, not a federal case, but he has to see the value in commuting the sentences of his political adversaries that are being prosecuted. And I know that in Georgia, pardons are issued by a uh, a parole, a, a pardon board, not necessarily the governor. But I would hope that Brian Kemp, the governor of Georgia, has the power to commute sentences. And if, even if Giuliani's convicted and sentenced, that he would uh, com- commute that sentence. 800-848-9222. Sherman is in Manhattan. Hello, Sherman. Frank, is great to talk to you. Quick question. I know you happen to be a Gemini. I'm curious to know what astrology sign uh, your wife happens to be, because I noticed periodically you mentioned that your wife kind of sighs and gets upset with you and different things. I'm just curious to know what, what astrology sign uh, She's an Aries, an Aries. Oh, oh, wow. That's very interesting. I get it now. Okay. There you have it. Thank See that? You. All right. <laughs> Thank you. Alex is in Hampton Bays. Hello, Alex. What's going on, Frank? Hey, I got a question for you. 
top three favorite seafood dishes. Oh, yeah. uh, I mean, they don't have to be in order. They don't have to be in order. Okay, Just top well, three. Give me top three. Uh, um, I, um, you know, I, I mean, you give me a seafood tower, and I am in, I am in some serious heaven, right? Um, where I have a lot of different varieties of different things. I love, um, I love mussels prepared in any different number of of sauce. I love um, a good lobster tail. I don't think you could beat a good lobster tail. Just, uh, you know, a broiled lobster, you know, maybe with some lemon and butter. I think that's right up there. I don't think there's anything more delicious than, say, maybe grilled sea scallops. I think grilled sea scallops are amazing. And then um, I love tuna I, I, in, in so many different ways. A nice tuna steak. Or even, you know, I get a lot of Japanese food, and I'm told I eat too much because of the mercury content. Some, uh, you know, sashimi, raw tuna. I mean, that sushi-grade sashimi uh, tuna, that is up my alley. So if I have to pick three, I'm picking lobster tails, I'm picking scallops, and and, uh, even though I love mussels, honorable mention to mussels, and I'm picking... Tuna in its varying forms. Thank you, Alex. 800-848-9222. Matt is in Rockland. Hello, Matt. Hey, Frank. Thanks for taking my call. How are you doing? Good. Thank you. Uh, yeah, I just had one question. If you had to, if given the opportunity, you had to fire one of the hosts on the network, who would it be? And it can't be yourself if I like you too much and oh. uh, and, and why. Well, you know, we have a pretty successful network, so I don't know. I don't know that I would fire any anyone. I mean, we're kind of we've had such a an incredible turnaround over the course of the last year. I'm not sure. I'm not sure that I would fire anyone. Do I have to in your scenario? Yeah, yeah, you have to pick one, even if you like them. Yeah. Okay, well, so I guess, and it's nothing against him, but if I had to pick a radio talk show host that's on our, our network that I would get rid of, and it, and it gunned to my head, and I, I'm not, I don't want to fire anybody, uh, it, it would probably be uh, Steve Moore, who does a show called More Money on the on the weekends, the, the Economist. He's a very smart guy and um, and a very interesting guy. I just don't know... That intelligence always translates to abilities to uh, host an entertaining radio show. So I might pick him if I wow. had to pick one, but I don't want to pick anybody. I think we're I think we're rowing in the right direction. Believe me. All right, we're going to continue in a moment. Eight hundred eight four eight ninety two twenty two. Eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. This is the other side of midnight. Ask Frank anything. Edition straight ahead. Hi, it's Ernie Anastas. You know, your thoughts can affect how you feel, and how you feel can impact your thoughts. Addressing your mind and body connection is the key to improving your overall wellness. Bergen Newbridge Medical Center is the largest hospital in New Jersey, providing comprehensive, equitable, compassionate, and high-quality emergency inpatient and outpatient medical care, plus mental health services and substance use disorder treatment. The Bergen Newbridge team can address your total health needs in one convenient location. Call 201-225-7130 for an appointment or newbridgehealth.org. New York's news and talk station. Download the 77 WABC mobile app now. It's the other side of midnight with Frank Morano.
This is the other side of midnight. This is Kiss, although this sounds a little different, this particular version. But Matt Blaze assures me it is Kiss. This is the 1975 studio version. All right. I will trust you. Uh, today is the birthday of Kiss frontman Gene Simmons. I believe he's 73 today. Happy birthday, Gene Simmons. Hopefully it is a, uh, a wonderful day. 74, actually. Hopefully uh, all of his wishes come true. My wish is to have a, gr- a great question from one of you as part of... The Other Side of Midnight proudly presents Ask Frank... Ask Frank anything. Ask Frank anything. Ask Frank anything. Ask Frank anything. Jacqueline is in Brooklyn. Hello, Jacqueline. Hi, Frank. Good morning. Morning. Um, I'm wondering, um, the debates, the first debates... Uh, from last night. Um, why were they only on Fox? I thought that the debates had to be on major local networks, or is that only the final debates between the two uh, majority parties? Yeah, that's only the uh, the general election debates. The, the way the primary debates work now, at least on the Republican end, but the Democrats have a similar system, the um, the RNC it basically says we're doing a set number of sanctioned RNC debates. These are our criteria for participating in them. And they basically entertain bids by sponsors for who can participate in these, you know, who, who can host these debates. And usually it's some sort of a partnership, like the next one is going to be at the Reagan Library, so they're a sponsor, but so is uh, the Fox Business Network, and so is the social media network uh, Rumble. I think uh, one of the Spanish-speaking stations is also a, a co-sponsor, so I think it's also on there. What happened was in 2012, where there was a Republican debate almost every day, um, these candidates basically said this is this is too much we we can't be debating every single day uh, but we also can't miss a debate because then all these guys kill us for for missing a debate so what they, they the rnc came up with this system where they entertain basically bids for media organization media organizations to host these debates but the historically the b- debates that are put on in the general election by the commission on presidential debates those are on all the broadcast networks Although there's rumors there may be something a little bit different this time around. 800-848-9222. Dave is in Lockport. Hello, Dave. Yes, Frank. Uh, Kind of a serious question, uh, honest answer. It's a three-parter. One, have you ever contemplated suicide? Two, uh, what did you do about it? How did you get over it? And... Three, uh, why? Um, well, no. So, no, I've never seriously contemplated uh, suicide. I have been very depressed at different points of my life. And uh, usually, and I don't think this is new to me, I, I think uh, unique to me, rather. I think this is the way with a lot of people. I've found in my own battles with depression, it's not necessarily one thing, but it's a combination of a multitude of things happening in succession that uh, that cause you to kind of go down a downward spiral. And then once you're in that negative headspace, it um, it really a 
attracts more of a negative headspace. So I, uh, I have been, um, very depressed at different times of my life, but I've never seriously contemplated suicide. And I really, I would encourage anybody, I don't know if this is the, the best solution, but it's the best one that I'm aware of. If they're contemplating suicide, um, and, you know, talk to some friends, talk to some family that you trust, or talk to somebody that you trust, whether it's a priest or a, or a therapist. But you can also call the Suicide and Crisis Hotline, which is available 24 hours a day. They can get that by 998, excuse me, 988. It's also available via SMS, 988. It's a great question, though, Dave. Thank you. And uh, look, I've spent a lot of time covering uh, mental illness issues and mental, uh, mental illness is not the right word, mental health issues. And uh, I recognize that it's a, a very real problem in the country. So certainly I something that I'm glad you brought up. 800-848-9222. One open line if you have a question. Charles is in the Queens. Hello, Charles. Good morning. Good morning. Um, I, I would like you to explain to me why even three, four months ago and even today, the majority of pundits are saying that Biden and Kamala Harris are going to be running. I predicted months ago on this show when you said something like, if I remember correctly, 80 or 90 percent, that it'll be Biden. And I said 90 percent that will not be Biden. Allow me to explain why I can't see it being Biden. That was 18 months ago. 18 months ago, we see Biden factually going downhill as far as uh, So, Charles, just so, dementia, I'm, just so I'm clear on so your on. question, your question and is... It gets worse and worse. What, your question is why do people... Okay, thank you, Charles. So your question, as I understand it, is why do people say that Biden is likely to be the nominee? I think the reason is, is because incumbent presidents that seek reelection in the modern era are almost always renominated. Not almost always. They are always renominated. You have to go to the um, now. There may, we're going to get into this a little bit in the um, third hour of the program when we talk with uh, Luke Nichter about the presidential election of 1968, because there are some similarities between what Johnson was going through and what Biden is going through. So we'll get into it then. So I'll table that until the uh, third hour of the program. All right. uh, The final five minutes here, 800-848-9222. Kirk is in Toronto. Hello, Kirk. Uh, Last week you spoke eloquently of Bill Shatner you jump through the Guardian of Forever. You land on that Titanic. You're running for the last seat on the on the lifeboat. You run. You see. You look down. There's two babies. One's name is Curtis. The other's name is Bill Shatner. Which baby do you pick? And which one goes to the bottom of the North Atlantic Ocean, ten thousand feet underwater? But Kirk, um, neither Curtis nor William Shatner were alive in 1912 when the Titanic was sinking. It's a position. It's a what? Who do you pick? Because Sunday morning, you will be dissected like a Peruvian frog if you pick the wrong guy. Well, no, no, but I, I don't understand the question. Neither of them was alive at the time of the Titanic. How well, could... They are alive. Somehow they are. I would pick whoever's younger at the time. I mean, I, so I guess I would pick Curtis because he's got more years to, uh, more years to go. Smart answer. Uh, thank you. 800-848-9222. John is in New Jersey. Hello, John. Hello, Frank. First, I want to tell you I love your show. Thank you. Um, if you could have one superpower, which one would you choose and why? 
uh, I've gotten this before, and I've thought about this since I was in the uh, in the sixth grade. Wisdom. If I could have superhuman wisdom, that would be what I would select. No doubt about it. 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. Joel is in Manhattan. Hello, Joel. Uh, hi, Frank. Hey, thanks for the uh, note on uh, the past loved one. My, my father just passed. I'm going to stay busy. Ah, well, I'm but, sorry um, for your father's passing. Thanks. I'll miss him big time. But um, I, I, another gentleman uh, kind of like carried into on one of my conversations that dovetailed it, and that was about if you've ever had a caller call in or if you've ever spoken to someone privately or uh, and they're, they're talking about doing the, you know, shutting off the off switch and how you dealt with that. Well, uh, Joel, so I'm I'm not sure that I'm clear on what you're asking. If someone was talking about taking their own life. Has anybody ever threatened suicide? Have you ever talked about suicide on the phone and actually doing it uh, or or, uh, personally that you've known of outside of uh, calling? So yes, I've known uh, I've known people that have uh, that have killed themselves. And um, sorry, They, they spoke to you. No, um, no. There was um, one, one or two callers that have called me over the years and said that, um, and said that they were, uh, you know, that, that they were feeling somewhat suicidal. But I, uh-huh. um, I, I just, you know, basically, I tried to make clear to them that, uh, you know, that it was such a, it was, it was very, a very self defeating strategy, and that, um, right. you know, that that I was there to listen to them, and that um, that they had a lot to offer. Offer not only you know not only themselves but the whole world. So, but no, I don't think I've ever had a serious discussion where, like, let's say, and and thanks for the call, Joel. Somebody was about to jump off a ledge, and I'm trying to talk them off the ledge. I've never experienced that, and I I hope I never do experience that honestly because that's a lot of pressure that I don't want. All right, Matt Blaze, you have a best question. Thomas in Baltimore interviewing Jesus. All right, Thomas in Baltimore, the Jesus interview. Call back. We're going to send you some other side of midnight swag, 800-848-9222. We are going to have a midnight panel. It will be our most unpredictable ever, believe me. Help control the pet population. Get your dog or cat spayed or neutered. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Talk Radio 77 WABC. Now, here's Frank Morano. Well, here we are. It is... Friday, at least on the East Coast, and the the moon is bright, but it's dark out, and I'm excited because for the next hour, we have the most unpredictable midnight panel that I've ever been a part of, and that is not hyperbole. That is the genuine truth, and I'm about to tell you what. We have assembled three people that, uh, along with me, it's four people, four people who have never, ever been in the same room with one another. In fact, I have never met any of these three people in person, ever, and 
in order to have sort of a kind of a, a guide for where we were going to be going throughout the course of the next hour, I asked all of them yesterday, hey, let me know what you want to talk about. And my plan was to send everybody what everybody wanted to talk about so we'd all be kind of on the same page. However, I got no responses from anybody so I am being genuinely serious when I tell you I have no idea what you're about to hear for the next 53 minutes, but here it goes. Uh, let's meet our illustrious panel. Let me begin with uh, someone who's been a guest on this program before, a divorced mother of two, activist and author of the new book, which everybody is talking about, Super Moms Activated, 12 Profiles of Hero Moms, Leading the American Revival. Jacqueline Toboroff. Jacqueline, it's great to meet you in person. So nice to be here, and clearly I don't read emails. Uh, clearly I put you on the right panel because we all have something in common here. Uh, let me also welcome Fred Rubino, who's a very well-known stand-up comedian and one of the few bold enough to uh, actually say that he's conservative. I have that right, uh, Fred? That is correct. That is correct. I am a, a dying breed, although I, I'm Happy to say it's making a comeback. Wonderful. All right. Well, good. I'm glad I just survived the hour. That's all we're asking. <laughs> and I also want to welcome uh, Kyrell Zantanovich, Zantanovich yes. an author whose books include Politics in One Lesson and Liberalism, Introduction to the World's Oldest, Newest, and Best Philosophy. And I was told, he handed me this book, Politics in One Lesson. I was told sincerely that this is probably the best book on politics that has ever been written. And I think he's off to a good start because it is short, which is a good start in being the best book on anything. Kyrell, welcome. Thank you very much. And, and believe it or not, yes, I do believe that. I, I claim it. If it's not true, then I'm surprised. All right. So if people check out this book and, and if they buy this book and it's not the best book on politics they've ever read, are you offering any sort of a money-back guarantee or anything? Well, I, I am, in fact. But uh, but certainly I'd like to hear from um, someone. But, yeah, if, if they read it and they're disappointed, then, yes, they should get their money back. All right. So the book is Politics in One Lesson, Kyrell Zantanovich. Uh, let me begin with you, Fred, because you confessed something to me off air just moments ago, which I thought was very interesting and it was going to make you very popular with uh, certainly everybody in the New York area. You said that you live, and you've certainly got a very impressive tan, you said you live in Florida a good portion of the year. Is that accurate? Yes, Orlando. Uh, Orlando, okay. Now, is uh, there seems to be a big thing with New Yorkers moving to the West Coast or the East Coast. Obviously, I know Orlando is where Disney is or near where Disney is. Right. Is that West Coast or East Coast? Dead center. Dead center. I Dead guess that's bullseye. why. I, I guess am. that's why Walt and Roy uh, Disney picked it. Um, tell me about that culturally. How's that going? Being a New Yorker in in Florida. It seems like, from my perspective, there are more New Yorkers living in Florida than there are in New York. That's true. And when I uh, perform in all over Florida, three quarters of the crowd are either Chicago, Jersey. New York. Uh, Jacqueline, are you a Florida person also? I feel like last time you were on the phone, you were... Oh, you were in Europe last time. <laughs> I'm not a Florida person. Right. I'm a Europe person. No. Uh, you know, at this point, I'd take an anywhere-but-New-York sort of person. Really? But do you do the Florida <laughs> thing? Because my neighbor no. was just in Florida, and he's sending me the, the photos of the thermometer. It's 99 degrees, 100 <sighs> degrees. I can't think of anything more awful than to go there in the middle of a, a hot August. Yeah. Um, no, I've been a couple of times. I mean, I, I'm not a Florida person. No. No. Okay. Uh, Kyrell Zantanovich, are you getting the uh, condo next to Fred Rubino in Orlando anytime soon? 
Well, I would think about it, but uh, I, I, I honestly have heard that it is very, very hot during the summer, so that's maybe unpleasant. So I would prefer maybe South Carolina or North Carolina. All right. We have a lot of listeners in, in both Carolinas as well. Let me ask the three of you about a Florida man who apparently is very much in the news. Donald Trump was uh, – he turned himself in last night just a few hours ago. He has got his mug shot out there. He's posted it on what the platform that used to be Twitter – Two-part question here. I'll start with you, Jacqueline. And if people want to jump in, just just jump in. The Do you think President Trump should have smiled in his mugshot? Because I kind of do. And two, what do you make of Trump finally coming back to Twitter uh, almost a year after Elon Musk restored him? He is such a stud. I'm That photo is freaking amazing. He's amazing. Can't wait to vote for him a third time. So you think he made the right call I mean, with this kind of stoic look? Flawless. He looks like a warrior. All right, Fred? I agree 100%. He right. looks like a warrior, and he, he's got that boss look to him. He always had. But I feel like you guys, and I know I, I don't know where you are on the presidential election, Kyrell. You're welcome to say so. But I feel like you guys, you're such Trump supporters that whatever his facial expression was, <laughs> you were going to say that it was the greatest facial expression that God ever created. That could be. You you could be right. All right. He could have he could have uh, looked down or straight up, and I'm like, look how he's looking straight up. Kyra, look how great. W- that is. What do you make of uh, the the facial expression in this particular mugshot? Well, I'm actually kind of shocked at that. I mean, he looks like he's uh, kind of a maniac, and he looks like uh, he's kind of a thug. But I give him credit. For, uh, I have all kinds of opinions on him, good, positive, and negative. Did you vote uh, for him at least once? No, I, in in my lifetime, I have never voted for a Democrat or Republican. I never will. So right, okay. I, I, ne- I never support them either. And I'm I'm not all that fond of the Libertarian Party either, even right. though that would be my politics. You're, you're the Groucho Marx Party, whatever it is, you're against it, right? No, I'm in fa- I'm in favor of uh, of of freedom and 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 social libertarianisms and economic capitalism and personal liberty. But you actually have to be in favor of that. You can't just say it. You have to really mean it. So I'll count that as a vote that he should have smiled in this mugshot. Uh, I, I have I, I don't care at all. Although I find <laughs> I find him very entertaining. I think I think he's simultaneously a guy who is uh, very petty. Very vain, very vulgar, very low low class. But at the same time, he's also he's nothing less than uh, dynamic and heroic. You've got to you've got to consider both of those elements. Well, Fred, we were told we were both <laughs> warned that uh, Kyrell Zentanovich pro- yeah. knows more about politics than probably anyone that we've ever met. Yes. I mean, I guess <laughs> I guess that proves it. I think no, that he's <laughs> talking uh, out of school. He says, "I think he's this. I think he's that." I worked construction 37 years in New York. I worked on a lot of Donald Trump sites where he was the contractor. They were the best jobs, cleanest, safest. He paid uh, the bills. There was no uh, uh, of your annuities that were late. Everything was on time. Every union member fought to get on a Donald Trump job. The man was class. A thousand percent. Did you have to go into comedy just because, you, you know, he was president now? You didn't have to uh, work at his construction sites anymore? No, I denied actually. that opportunity? I retired, and then I went into comedy. Gotcha, gotcha. Um, l- let me, Jack, what did you think of the debate yesterday? I, I, I don't know, without the leading presidential candidate, it seemed kind of lame. I mean, what was your view of the whole thing? Oh, my God, it's so wild. I mean, I can't even... Get over what's going on. Again, listen, Trump wasn't there. He was the clear winner. 
I watched the Tucker interview. I watched the Fox. Uh, Vivek was great. Christy, it's so bad. Uh, Pence, I don't know. Yeah. Trump won. I was, I was, you know, like everyone else, watching the Tucker. I, I want to, um, since you mentioned Chris Christie, I want to ask you about a question that he got towards the end of the evening. I thought the question was interesting. I thought his response was very interesting. Well, I'll have you guys weigh in on uh, on his answer after after folks listen to this. This is the question from Martha McCallum. All right, Matt's going to work on. Uh, just let me know when we have uh, have that back up, Matt. But um, okay, here we now go. for something uh, a little out of this world, and this is for you, Governor Christie. Do you believe that the recent spike in UFO encounters? <laughs> I get the UFO question. Is, yeah, you do. Come on, there man. <laughs> but okay, we've been hearing a lot of we've been hearing a lot of testimony in Congress, and people are taking this a lot more seriously. And we're hearing that, you know, there are things going on that people aren't aware of. So, if you were president, Governor Christie, would you level with the American people about what the government knows about these possible Look, Martha, and especially coming from a woman from New Jersey, I, I think it's horrible that just because I'm from New Jersey, you asked me about unidentified flying objects and Martians. Um, we're different, but we're not that different. Um, look, um, of course, the job of the president of the United States is to level with the American people about everything. The job of the president of the United States is to stand for truth. The job of the President of the United States is to be a role model for our children and our grandchildren. And so whether it was UFOs or this problem of education, and Tim's right, by the way, and I started this in 2010 by going right after the teachers' unions in New Jersey and drove them down to an all-time low popularity rating because they were putting themselves before our kids. That is the biggest threat to our country, not UFOs. Meantime, former Navy pilot and the founder of Americans for Safe Aerospace, Ryan Graves, who recently testified before Congress, he said uh, that he thinks Christie's answer was horrible. And basically, he said that this should not be treated like a joke and that we actually Americans deserve answers, not jokes. Fred, what do you make of uh, of uh, Christie's answer to that question and Ryan Graves criticism of Christie's answer? Well, I think uh, the UFO thing should be addressed and just either put to bed or exposed that it, it's happening. Personally, I don't believe in UFOs. There's no way. I, I mean, they come to this world from another world, and they teach <laughs> us how to put blocks on top of other, how to build a pyramid. I, uh, you can't give us the secrets of the universe. Well, pyramids are important, right? I, I mean, they go to Easter Island. They show you, you know what you do? We came a billion miles. <laughs> Let's make a big face and face it. What? What did you come here for? So it sounds like you, you're kind of where Christy is on this response. I just don't get the whole alien thing. I don't understand how. And, and then they come here and they hide. They come here five billion light years and they hide. Me, I drive to Atlantic City an hour and a half. I kick the door open. I'm here. 
<laughs> you know, what you came here to hide? I don't understand. Uh, Jacqueline Toberoff, what do you what do you make of Christie's answer and Ryan Graves' response and uh, and Fred's response? The to? whole thing is so farcical. We've been lied to since 2020. Now we're we're being given a question by you know, oh, would you tell the truth and do you uphold honesty? And he's like, yeah, yeah. The the duty is to be honest. You people have been lying to us for three years. I don't believe anything. So they're aliens. You've been concealing it now. Now, all of a sudden, all this stuff is happening and aliens are here. And, you know, Christie's record as governor wasn't exactly yes. known for being honest, right? right? I mean, that wasn't exactly considered his hallmark. Please. Uh, Kyrell Zantanovich, would you make a Christie's answer there? Well, I think in general, he says that the government should be honest, which, of course, it should be. But unfortunately, the established philosophy is that the people are morons and you can't trust them. And so the government has an established policy of lying. Now, I wish there were UFOs around. I mean, uh, I have a low opinion of mankind, too. So I, I would like to think that uh, uh, the aliens are much smarter and much better than us. And I would like to meet them. But unfortunately, I, I just don't think it's it's true. So uh, I don't trust the government. But on the other hand, I don't I don't think there's anything to cover up. You know, Kyrell is sort of a very alien sounding name. I mean, it, it's something true. like uh-huh. Superman's no, father. No, I mean, right, right. <laughs> no, well, Superman's name was Kalel. Kalel, Kyrell. That's not exactly. It, it is not exactly suspi- a different. Be, it is planet. suspicious. I, I admit it's suspicious, and 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 I would be the first person to welcome the aliens. And I think the alien because you are an alien, Cairo Zantanovich. Well, that's how you got this superhuman knowledge to write the greatest <laughs> political book of all time. That's why you know more about politics than anyone you've ever met. Well, that that's 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 sort of true, at least in in a book of short stories I wrote, where I sort of assumed the part of an alien. <laughs> but, like, but, but like I said, I, I would I would love to meet um, uh, space aliens. I, but I, and and I, and one thing we should note about them is they're very likely to be much smarter than us much more morally superior, and so they are not going to conquer our planet, enslave us. They're not going to steal our women. They, uh, they, they have as much use for us as we have for ants. Well, they might be smarter than us, but they're clearly not going to be smarter than you, right? I mean, <laughs> well, I think that's no, where we are. They're, on that. they're, they're smarter than me, but uh, believe it or not, uh, just to show you what my level of arrogance is, I think the space aliens should speak to the most authoritative and best person they can find, that's not the president of the United States. That's not the president, the, the general secretary of the UN. It may be someone like me. They, sh- they should uh, ask me what my opinion is of uh, of mankind. Nope, and it's not very good. It's not very good. Nope, they come and hide. Well, first of all, it, well, well, whatever. I'll put that as a comment aside. But uh, Kyrell, I am curious. It's very interesting. What uh, do, are you an author full time for a living? If not, am I out of line asking what you do do for a living? Well, I, I'm retired, so I've been a, a part-time writer very seriously since 9-11, so that's like uh, 22 years, and then I retired about three years ago. So I do write f- uh, full-time, and I've written uh, three books, one on philosophy, one on politics, one on short stories, and I'm, I'm, I'm extraordinarily proud of all of them. So, yes, I'm a, I'm a full-time writer. All right. Well, if you're interested in checking out uh, Kyrell Zontanovich's book, it's called Politics in One Lessons, available on Amazon, and while it might not be as good as Kyrell's book, you're also <laughs> going to probably want to check out Jacqueline Toberoff's book, Supermom's Act. Activated, which uh, which I have read and has some great stories in there, and people can check that out. Fred, do you have a book at all? I do not have a book, uh, but uh, I, well, get out of here! I what are you doing? With all I hope people? to write a better political book than Corell's. <laughs> I'd, I'd love one to day. I'd, I'd, I'd love to read it. <laughs> all right, uh, we're going to continue. Jacqueline Toberoff okay. is here. Fred Rubino is here. Kyril Zantanovich is here. If you have uh, questions for our illustrious panel, you can call in, and we'll try and get to as many people as we can here. Eight hundred eight four eight ninety two twenty two. Any subject is fair game. Nothing is off limits because uh, we're we're kind of flying 
flying by the seat of our pants here. We're talking about aliens. We're talking about Florida. You name it. We may even talk football. 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight with our Midnight Panel. Straight ahead. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Suits. That's why nobody knew. Perfect haircuts looking smooth, just like me and you. They looked so much like they belonged, nobody looked their way. The aliens came in business suits, business suits, business suits. The aliens came in business suits. Rod McDonald, the aliens came in business suits. This is the other side of midnight. We're having a good time as we get ready to start the weekend. We have three very intelligent people, one more intelligent than the rest of us. Uh, Two of them uh, are very accomplished authors, uh, Jacqueline Toberoff, uh, Fred Rubino, and Kyrell Zantanovich. Jacqueline, you and I were chatting off air. You're a mom of two. Uh, My wife and I just have uh, one child, and he's been having a difficult time sleeping all week. I really feel bad for my wife that she's got to, you know, soldier out all this burden while I'm here having fun with you guys. What, uh, any advice on what to do if you have a child that just doesn't seem to want to sleep through the night? I was the baby whisperer. As soon as I was given the go-ahead that my, my kids had reached the right weight, I was done. I was like, you're in the crib. I don't care if a nuclear bomb goes <laughs> off. I am never coming in to get you. Well, what, I mean, obviously, if they're crying, you have to check if they need to be changed, right? And no. then you don't know. No. You don't want them to get a diaper rash or something. Diaper rash? Leave them in there. Real, Listen, really? Unless not, it's not like with a poop, right? Thermal nuclear meltdown where that room is about to be taken down. <laughs> you stay the hell out. No matter what. No, and I find that. Men have a much harder time doing that. No, I, well, you know, I have I have taken that tact generally with my my wife, and now she's kind of where I am. She leaves him alone, but for twenty, thirty, forty, for, after forty five minutes, and he's still crying, she'll go in there. Oh, I waited hours. I mean, hours. they are terrorists. They know they're so manipulative. They know you're coming in. Well, I mean, I, I hate to think my son as a as a terrorist. Fred, what's your story? Do you have any children? I have two children, a boy and a girl. And uh, they slept through the night right away. Right away. NyQuil. <laughs> a slow NyQuil drip. So you were drugging them? Absolutely. My neighbor, we did a segment on this on the radio. My neighbor, they give their kids melatonin, which a lot. I read an article. More and more parents are, are doing this. And doctors are very divided about whether parents should be doing this, but most seem to think that you you probably shouldn't. Uh, did you ever? Did you actually give your kids Nyquil? Yeah, regularly. I would give them Nyquil. How old are they now? 
They're uh, 34 and 25. And are they normal? No. They're no, no. Okay. Uh, all that NyQuil takes a toll, but at least I got some sleep. It's not all about them. <laughs> it's true. It's not, That's right. If I can't make it to work and be yeah. my best, who's going to pay for your diapers, Carmine? Right. That's right. Uh, Kyrell, what about you? What's you? Do you have any children? Well, I, ha- I have no children, and as usual, when people don't have kids, they're, they consider, consider themselves experts on how to raise kids. <laughs> so I would say uh, the, the, pro- the solution to your uh, problem, Frank, is that you simply exercise the child a lot before it's time for bed. You don't let him have naps early. And then, yes, uh, Fred is correct. It's, it's okay to give them a small amount of sleeping pills. It sounds terrible to a lot of people, but I think it's okay if you do it occasionally. All right. Well, yes. Kyrell said so. Uh, the man that wrote Politics in One Lesson, <laughs> but, but the I'll, greatest I'll, political book of all time. I'll tell you something else, though, about kids, and, and this actually makes me sad. I can remember back a long time ago when I was like maybe two or three years old, and I really would manipulate my parents. I would sometimes uh, cry, and I felt terrible doing it. And I knew I was dishonest when I was doing it, and I even knew I shouldn't do it, but I would still do it. So it, it, it's, it's odd the way that works out, but kids do manipulate you. Dogs and cats manipulate you, too. So you have to be aware of this. All right. Uh, Kyrell Zantanovich, there you go. I've drugged my dog and cat as well. <laughs> but, but cats and dogs will train people as much as, at least in, to a certain extent, as well as the people train them. 800-848-9222. Any subject is fair game. 800-848-9222. Carl is in Ridgefield. Carl, uh, what do you have for our illustrious panel here? Okay, yeah, the question no one could answer uh, was name a ventriloquist. I can name two who were very famous. I'm surprised nobody could answer it. Charlie McCarthy. Well, obviously, Charlie McCarthy's a legend, but he's not no longer with us. Well, it, all right, it was Edgar Bergen and Charlie McCarthy, and the second one, Paul Winchell and Jerry Mahoney. Yeah, I, well, but all of them are dead. I'm sorry, what? Yeah, I'm sorry too, Carl. Believe me. Now, Carl, <laughs> I understand you are actually the the greatest ventriloquist that has ever lived. Is that accurate? Uh, unfortunately, uh, uh, I'm surprisingly serious about a lot of stuff. And when you contacted me early, this is w- w- when you contacted me early and you said I suggest suge- suggest something um, light, it really did occur to me in a way that I never thought of before that that everything I do is very serious. And so I, I don't I, – but, but despite what you said, uh, I did give you a suggestion, just maybe not a very good one. What was it? Tell me what it was. Tell us Well, what it was. Uh, I thought uh, one thing – just one, one idea which has come to me in the last uh, few months is that uh, uh, I think that these thriller novels, which are very popular, and these, these movies which feature um, heroes like from the comic books are actually a very positive part of our culture. Everyone is very down on the culture, and so am I. I consider myself to be a liberal, so I'm opposed to religious conservatism on the right, collectivist progressivism on the left. So, uh, but, but quietly, uh, these, these thriller novels and these movies are, are wonderful. It's a battle between good and evil. The, people, the heroes are, are fantastically competent, including in a way that they never, never are in real life. It's very heroic. It's, it's, it's inspiring, and I think it's making our world a better place. All right, uh, Jacqueline, any, any reaction to that? He didn't say uh, Supermoms Activated is making our world a better place. <laughs> Supermoms Activated is making our world a better place. I have no reaction to that. Fair, I fair, fair enough. Fred, you've got a reaction to that. Uh, I noticed he dodged the whole ventriloquist. I, uh, you noticed that, that too? That, that's anything, that's anything but talk about a ventriloquist, I noticed with him. Did you ever work I, have, I have zero knowledge of that. Uh, okay, well, we found a subject. I was going to ask wow. you for a list of subjects you were not an expert in. We finally found the one. But meanwhile, Biden is a puppet <laughs> of... Uh, I, well, 
politics, right? Uh, Fred, can well, we yeah. all agree on that? <laughs> yes. He, he could be a puppet of, of uh, the left. Uh, I, I think he probably is being run by some people like Obama. See how I wove, yeah, I, I, I wove that in? I, <laughs> you ever work with a ventriloquist? I Fred? have. Uh, Gemini from uh, uh, Staten Island. Uh, good, good uh, ventriloquist. He does a whole thing. They all have the same thing, you know, the right, puppets exactly. with yeah. the little legs yeah, and drink the, the water. Yeah, yeah. yeah and it, you make fun yeah. of some woman, and you're like, "Why are you saying that?" Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, <laughs> Jacqueline, you have any ventriloquism experience? Or? I zero. I think this is the most I've ever spoken about <laughs> ventriloquists yes. in my life. I couldn't name one. All right. Well, um, let me ask you about what is sort of a serious subject. Men who who play organized football evidently have higher odds of developing Parkinson's disease. This is the word from researchers in a study that was just published in a very reputable medical journal just out this week. Uh, we've heard a lot of negative things about uh, tackle football, and uh, there's been a lot of attention focused on the long-term effects of head injuries this particular study, which has been published in the Journal of the American Medical Association, highlights what had previously been an undocumented risk that exists even for those playing at amateur levels who make up the majority of those that play football. These are researchers from Boston University. They examined over 1,800 men enrolled in this online study, and they concluded a history of playing football was associated with, and this is no joke, 61% higher odds of having a Parkinson's diagnosis. What do we make of this? Time to ban football? No, it's not time to ban football, but I mean, what do we all like not have brain activity above plant life? Listen, playing football, I mean, doesn't look like the safest sport. Did we really need this poll to let us know that? I don't think they should ban football. I mean, we are still somewhat of a free country. Yeah, it, it, wait right. till wait till Monday. We'll see where Monday? we are by yeah. Monday. What um, uh, do, would you let your children play organized no. football? I'm a no? Jewish mother. No, <laughs> Fred, uh, you are a Gentile. What, what was your <laughs> philosophy gentle. when it <laughs> when it came to football and parenting? Uh, I, I think that's great news because I never played football, so I think my uh, odds of Parkinson's are very very low. Although my mother hit me over the head with a wooden spoon. Almost every day. I can't imagine that bodes well for so, your yes. mental health. I want to know what the level is for Italians. <laughs> That's, That's what sure. I want to know. Uh, uh, Kyra, what about this? Uh, people who play organized football have a uh, more likely, a greater likelihood of Parkinson's. What do you make of that? Unfortunately, I think that's true. Parkinson's and, and a lot of other diseases. But the sad thing about that is, in my opinion, the best sport and even maybe the most quintessential sport we have is football. And it's partially because it's, it's so violent. I mean, there's more vis visceral pleasure in watching it than even, you know, America's pastime, which is baseball or basketball, which is very fast. So uh, if I was a parent, I maybe would have very giant questions about letting my kid play. But at the same time, football is my absolute favorite sport. So, well, who do you root for? So well, I, I went to school for two years in, in Alabama. So even though it seems crazy, and, and I had a lot of contempt for people when I was in Alabama for the old people that would root for the young kids playing football. But now I'm in the exact same position. And, and uh, I'm, I'm like Joe Namath because Joe Namath was at Alabama. And I heard him say like 10 years ago, well, at least I have a team to root for because the Giants and Jets so are so bad. At least I can root for, you know, Nick Saban and the Alabama Crimson Tide. So, so, so I, I watched them 
a lot. You know, so I, I don't follow college football too closely, but I do love that film, Crimson Tide, with Gene Hackman. And the, the yes. film, the, they make a big deal about the ship being named Crimson Tide. So I actually root for the Crimson Tide because of that motion picture. Uh, you follow football at all, Jacqueline? Uh, Cincinnati Bengals, just because of my son. Really? Yeah. Okay. Why is he a Bengals fan? Uh, he likes the challenge. Now we have to go to Cincinnati. Welcome. You're kidding. Really? Yeah. Wow. I would drug him. Uh, again, I'm a Jewish mom. Off we go to Cincinnati. Where do you come down on the drugging that Fred has recommended? I would not be doing that. No. No. That would make me nervous. Well, just start on other people's kids and then... <laughs> If it works out, you know, you go to York. Uh, fair okay. enough. Uh, let's say hello to Sankar in Brooklyn. Hello, Sankar. Okay, yeah. If you could cut the, the, the nap during the day. He's about two years old now, right? Huh? Yeah. You I... could get him involved in different activity like uh, story time at the library, uh, a group thing, jimbury. Get him involved. Cut the nap during the day. Don't drug your child. Uh, Let him go to bed a little later. Nice, cool bath. All right, no nap. Well, first of all, I want to be clear. You know, he is participating in activities, and we do give him a bath. Yeah, what do you, he's keep not, him in a cage? What's, what's going on? Is it like a veal? He's not sitting <laughs> chained in a basement all day to a pole walking around. I mean, he's he's very active. Uh, but, uh, I, okay, cutting the nap during the day. I had hoped that we wouldn't be there at this point. But, I think she's uh, talking about you. Yeah, yeah I'm not cutting my nap. Forget about that. I rely. I on that nap to, right. to, so I can function later in the day. Our friend Lisa in Connecticut. Lisa, who you may not know, she's uh, a terrific artist in her own right, and uh, she's she's really a spirited person. And her, her father turned 82 yesterday. Lisa, I'm sure you guys have been uh, partying like crazy over that uh, 82nd birthday party, right? Well, the we have a little bit, but I still I have been working, so more parties this weekend. But I wanted to tell you that. Did you know that there was a study done about shadow boxing and boxing and that when you're elderly, if you do shadow boxing with a partner, that that actually has been, there's a study that shows it helps with, um, I guess, the motor skills and whatnot. It helps with Parkinson's and Alzheimer's. Oh, really? All right. Well, with a partner. Yeah. Any of you guys yeah, yeah, want yeah. to shadow box a little later? Well, shadow boxing is, yeah, is well, another danger. Let's do it now. Do you like to shadow your partner? Real boxing hurts My nephew, Griffin, actually was playing over in, in Cheshire, High, uh, Cheshire uh, High School for football. He had a concussion last year, and we had to pull him out. So he's doing a different sport now. Oh well, I, yeah. I am. Uh, I'm. I'm sorry to hear that, but uh, I'm glad he's. Uh, I'm glad he's done okay. Just going back to Trump for a second. I want to ask the three of you about this. The New York. I got an email from a listener. Um, it was actually another talk show host right before the show, and then sure enough, what he brought up to me in this email, the New York Post has now done an article about this. And some of you guys may have seen this, but for people that haven't heard about this, let me let me tell them about this. Evidently, you know, you have to get weighed when you turn yourself in. And there's a situation like what Trump went through in Georgia yesterday. And apparently former President Trump lost 25 pounds and gained, this is according to the New York Post, 
and gained an inch of height since April, according to the jail records filed Thursday after he surrendered to Fulton County authorities. The 77-year-old's measurements, which were pre-reported, according to ABC News, indicate that Trump is 215 pounds with a height of uh, 6 feet 3 inches, 25 pounds lighter and 1 inch taller than when he was booked in Manhattan in April. This has left a lot of people on the Internet, including the social media network formerly known as Twitter, incredulous. A lot of people are not buying this 215-pound weight or the extra inch in in height. I mean, uh, what do you think, Fred? Can being arrested and indicted four times make you grow an inch? I'm sure that he has a lot of anxiety, as tough as he is. And uh, he's going to be away from his family and stuff like that. So I'm sure, you know, he might have lost some weight. I'm just, you know, what happens if they arrest Chris Christie? Well, what? Well, he's got to go to like to the planetarium. They got to like do it with math. You, there's not. So uh, I, I think, uh, I think Trump is can do anything he wants. I believe he'll be seven foot tall by the time he's elected. Right. Uh, Jacqueline, uh, what about this? Did the did the former president gain an inch and lose twenty five pounds? What do you make of this? Two theories. They're either lying or they're incompetent or both. We have seen prisoners die in these people's hands. That's true. This is true. Of bed bugs. Uh, Right. In that prison, a prisoner died of bed bugs. Oh, my. And that's that's not very pleasant. No, at all. Not at all. What do you make of Waitgate, Kyrell? People are saying this is the uh, biggest example of doctoring records since the Mar-a-Lago cameras were tampered with. Or or that uh, Jeffrey Epstein suicide. Exactly. Uh, I I would say that he really does. Donald Trump is such an absolute collection of uh, contradictions. When I see him. Uh, he looks bizarre. I think his his stomach is tremendously huge and disgusting. His rear end is the same way. He has these owl eyes. He has orange skin, and uh, uh, he, he and he has the world's it's worst harsh, the world's it? worst That's comb over. But despite all of that, in some in some senses, he's a resilient guy, and I and I cheer for him. You know, he's not a libertarian, so I'm not going to support him or vote for him. But uh, I think he's a very good comedian at his rallies. And this is just one more giant contradiction. But the 215 pounds sounds sounds grotesquely off. I'd say he's got to be like 245. Right. I think he could have. I think he could have lost. Some I money. don't know what's worse, saying he's got a, a, a big ass or he has a nice ass. <laughs> See, if you would have said he's got a nice ass, maybe. But but it, 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 he's he's got a very unpleasant body. Like nine times out of ten, I'm not going to notice. He's 77. I'm not going to yeah, notice that. Right. I'm only going to notice it in women. He looks amazing. <laughs> I think he looks good for 77, honestly. I, I haven't seen him. Well, in his suit and tie, when you look at him straight on, he looks pretty good. I think okay. he's got a nice ass. So there, I'm you, just gonna... there you go. He looks terrible on the golf course. Um, well, well, look, I, I, I'm glad nobody's photographing me nine times a day on the golf course. Believe me. Joe is in Queens. What do you have for our uh, illustrious I, panel? I want to ask about, in general, people having addictive tendencies. You know, we always bring up gambling, things like that. But uh, my friend's daughter is walking up the stairs as she's looking at tip. TikTok. She can't even walk up the stairs uh, without looking up at, at TikTok. So uh, what, what do you think of addictive tendencies? Should people be more aware of that? And how do you counter that? Specifically when it comes to things like, like phone use and digital media usage? Uh, yes. Yeah. Okay. Uh, you know, Jacqueline, I'll, I'll begin with you uh, on this. You you have the Instagram that has caused a lot of people to become Instagram addicts. What do you uh, What do you make of what uh, Joe brings up there? 
Yeah, I think they are. I think it's a sign of where we are in today's world. And I don't think lockdowns for 8,000 years helped it. Uh, Fred, what do you have for us? I think uh, kids have been kids forever. And uh, before the Internet, it was uh, watching sports. And then before that, it was they were glued to the radio. And before that, it was watching the fire. So no big deal. No big deal. Uh, Kyrell. I actually think it is a big deal, and it's hard to solve. I think that uh, in in today's world, uh, you really are easily addicted to the Internet. I mean, I find myself on the Internet at times, and hours go by, and I'm just shocked at the time. I think the only thing you can do is just recognize that there's an infinite amount of information out there. You don't need all of it. You only need a little bit of news, and you only need a little bit of entertainment, too. And so you just have to have good self-discipline. And, and don't waste too much time on the Internet. Let me ask you guys about a, a serious subject, you know, here in New York, but also in many other cities, in border states, but even in cities like Chicago and other places. You know, we're dealing with this migrant issue and cities are wondering how to contend with in New York alone. Uh, there's 100,000 migrants and counting that have that have ha- that have come here. And in my neighborhood, they're uh, housing migrants or planning to house migrants at a facility that was once used as an assisted living facility for seniors. Another facility that used to be a girls' Catholic school. There was a huge protest last night, just I think ended a couple hours ago. Four people were arrested. A friend of mine was there. He said the people were screaming at the cops to leave them alone. Some of the poli- this is again his report. The police got ticked off that other people were running and cursing. Someone tried to move the barrier. It was chaos, but I think it's an indication. And he said um, they, the protest went on for about seven hours, and, and almost overwhelmingly it was peaceful. But I think this is clearly an indication of the passions that are existing about people that don't want this in their communities. Realistically, given the given the dance card as it is now, right, what do we do about this migrant problem? Whether we're talking from a city perspective, a state perspective, or even a national perspective, these folks are already in the country. How do we handle this? Two things. I'm not going to keep it light. We need someone that is going to round them up and send them home. Second thing, stop incentivizing yes. it. Stop paying $400 a night. Stop giving them cell phones, drugs, cigarettes. Uh, Medicare legal service, stop it. Fred. Um, is that the best this country could do is put tens of thousands of people in camps in every city and just tent them and, and just feed them? I mean, we could do so much better. Either get rid of them or just, uh, I don't know what to do with them, but they can't stay and they can't just dilute the, uh, the labor market and even even now they they're they're saying we have to rush through work permits for them. We're going to give them jobs now. There's so many poor people in New York that need a job and and need employment, and we're going to push these people to the front. I'm sorry, we got it. We got to get rid of them. Kyrell, I see a lot in this book, uh, Politics in One Lesson, The Utopia Uh-oh. of Liberty, Language of Liberation, Solving Political Problems. This is a pretty big political problem. Um, what are we doing about the migrant problem in Kyrell world? Well, uh, solving the immigration problem is about the easiest problem there is that exists, especially if you're a libertarian. What you do is you, you, you have a, an immigration policy based upon merit. So you let in the good people and you keep out the bad people. And you even recruit the good people and you even force out the bad people. So if a person will make America better, 
then they get to come in. If they make it worse, then they have to stay out. And you judge uh, goodness based on are they going to work or are they going to commit crimes? Are they going to go on welfare or are, are they going to work? Are they going to learn English? Are they going to uh, – are they, are they well-educated? You could even say are they young and beautiful and sexy? I mean if, if they and make – have a nice ass. If, uh, that's <laughs> correct. And so uh, it, it, should, it should be a policy strictly of merit with a small amount of, uh, of, of, of allowance for refugees. But it's not the job of America to save the world. And if America, America does decide to save the world, it's going to destroy itself, and the world is going to be a worse place. Norman is in Brooklyn. Norman, what do you have for our illustrious panel here? Hi, Frank. Um, I, I just wanted to follow up with you about that uh, Trump getting taller. A lot of uh, a lot of rich people use human growth hormone for hormone replacement therapy, and that can make you grow an inch or so. I've had a few bodybuilder friends of mine grow. All right. Well, so Trump might have grown here. I yep, and it, they but... <laughs> would lose weight from the drug too. All right. I I, uh, I like it. Okay. Thank you, Norman. We'll continue in just a moment. Jackie Toberoff is here. Kyrell Zantanovich is here, and Fred Rubino is here. We'll continue with your calls. Eight hundred eight four eight ninety two twenty two. This is the other side of midnight. Straight ahead. The other side of midnight. Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. birthday to Walter Williams, not the economist and uh, professor at uh, George Mason University, but the ultra-smooth tenor voice of the OJs that you hear right here. I I am joined in studio by uh, three very interesting people. I wish you could hear the conversations that are taking place off-air. They're even more captivating than what you're hearing. Fred Rubino, conservative stand-up comedian, is here. Kyle uh, Kyrell Zantanovich, an author whose books include Politics in One Lesson, what critics have said is probably the greatest political book ever written, and uh, Jacqueline (laughs) Toberoff, a mom of two, an activist and author, and her book, Super Moms Activated, 12 Profiles of Hero Moms Leading the American Revival, has a lot of people uh, talking. Jacqueline, remind us, and again, we uh, we spoke about this when we talked about your book, what are these super moms doing to bring about the American Revival? They're fighting back. They're taking over school boards. They're suing schools. They are crafting policy, electing politicians. Uh, they're fighting back and they're saving America. And um, the, you brought up, Fred, in context of the whole Trump thing, uh, this movement towards Ozempic and this this family of obesity drugs, which is all the rage now. They, prote- they predict that in the next few years, 
These could be the best-selling drugs of all time. And, I mean, you're talking trillions made by the drug companies from these, I think they're called semiglotides or something along those lines. Uh, what do you what do you think about that? What are the implications for society? Happy about this? Uh, I think uh, it's going to uh, end obesity in the United States and maybe in the world. And you're going to see people with, like, less knee surgeries, less diabetes. And so, you know, if you can end obesity... In this country, that's great. I mean, I'm going to at least for the people that can afford the drug, right? Well, I'm sure it'll go down. You know, I'm going to invest in yoga pants because (laughs) the more they lose weight, the more yoga pants that sell. Eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. You know, we're speaking of food, Fred. I know you're a conservative, but. Uh, you've said, you know, being from a place, you're from New York originally, right? Yes, Brooklyn. Uh, um, being from a place like Brooklyn, they have some of the best food in the world. No matter what your ethnicity is, you know, Jewish, Russian, Italian, uh, you know, whatever your cultural identity is, West African, there's great food in Brooklyn for whatever your du jour is. Do you think food is something that can be used to kind of bridge through some of the political divides that seem so polarizing in society today? I think so. I think it's the uh, it's the great uh, barrier destroyer food. I mean, you could get together with five people, different ethnicities, and you go and you go to a restaurant and you eat, and it's not your food, but you like it. And and one thing about New York, whatever it is, Jewish food, Greek food, Italian food, it's the best. Uh, no, you're not going to get an argument from me there. That's one of the reasons that I think New York has a couple of points ahead of uh, Florida. Sure. Uh, Jacqueline, what about you? What's your go-to food for breaking down political barriers with people? Uh, a pie that I can throw in their face. <laughs> maybe, Good idea. maybe actually food tears people apart. I mean, think about all those holidays that have become so contentious. Well, yeah, Thanksgiving among them. But uh, is it possible these days for people of different political views to sit down, break bread, and talk about politics in a reasonable manner? It seems like it's getting tougher and tougher. Uh, I think it's getting tougher and tougher. Uh, who knows? Look, maybe with all that free food up in D.C., they can get along and then figure out ways to collude and screw the American public. Kyrella, I don't see a chapter on food in your book. No. What, what role do you think food plays in terms of uh, enabling folks of different uh, persuasions, political persuasions, to talk with one another? Uh, well, I think it, it, it has a no effect. So uh, I think... Uh, we should try as best we can to talk, and maybe we should just understand that if you are a right-wing conservative or a left-wing progressive, which is the only two views around since no one knows what libertarianism, both sides are absolutely wrong. And both sides, believe it or not, are, are absolutely the same. So it doesn't matter whether you're eating, you're eating or not eating. You should try and be civilized, and you should maybe try and be humble because uh, if you're a conservative or, or a progressive – you don't know what you're talking about. You're attacking people. You're initiating force. You're attacking people and property. You're violating the rights of man. So you should get along because you're equally foolish and depraved. I knew Fred didn't know what he was talking about. I, I knew it. I knew food it. is not. But gonna, everyone food loves is, pizza. I, ideas help. <laughs> food is great, but uh, you, at some point you have to actually understand politics. You have to understand philosophy. There's no substitute for knowledge and truth. But in Syria, in all seriousness, no. The, the vast majority of people out there. They don't have an in-depth understanding of philosophy or any, any, any theoretical ideas. Most people that I encounter, whether they identify as liberal, conservative, or non-political, 
they just want to work, uh, have enough money to pay their rent, maybe have uh, some time to spend with their family, go out to dinner once in a while, and uh, find some of life's lighter pleasures occasionally. Maybe well, coach the baseball team or go to church. So how do you – if you're saying that you have to have essentially uh, mastery of all these subjects – But these are not hard subjects. These are very easy subjects. In some ways, I say that people that don't read politics or philosophy like I do, they're, they're, they're the happiest people around. But at some point, uh, you can't avoid them. So, so you need to acquire knowledge. And believe it or not, when I study philosophy and politics, it all seems very, very simple. It, it, it's not hard to understand. It's just that uh, we, have, we have these bad philosophers that have poisoned us. So. Uh, Fred, your reaction? I think you're right. I think uh, everybody all over the country is looking for the same thing. Raise your family, safety for your family, get uh, good food, and uh, to just uh, live your life peacefully. And if that takes... Drugging your children, you you drug your <laughs> children. That's what you no, but do. There, there's good stuff. If you stay away from politics, you can have good food. You can play sports, which I think is marvelous. Well, no, but in all seriousness, I, I think in some respects, uh, Kyrell's actually making the case for people to be less engaged. So why should people be active like you are and uh, like I think the, all of us in this room are? Why not just be blissfully ignorant and take the blue pill like in the Matrix? You want to know why? Because 82 percent of New Yorkers don't like the migrant problem. And that's what happens when you don't pay attention. Jacqueline Tobaroff, we're going to give you the last word. My thanks to Jacqueline Tobaroff, Kyrell Zantanovich, and Fred Rubino. I hope you guys had fun. Hopefully we can do this again. Yes, I did. That was fun. All right. Uh, Check out Jackie's book, Supermoms Activated. Check out Kyrell's book, Politics in One Lesson. You can go to Fred's website, fredrubino.com, R-U-B-I-N-O.com, and keep asking questions. Last night, after surrendering at the Fulton County Jail in Atlanta on charges connected to Georgia's election investigation, Trump talking to reporters before boarding his plane back to New Jersey. Has taken place here is a travesty of justice. We did nothing wrong. I did nothing wrong. And everybody knows it. I've never had such support. And that goes with the other ones, too. What they're doing is election interference. They're trying to interfere with an election. Trump was fingerprinted and photographed for a mugshot the first time ever in U.S. history this has ever happened to a president or former president. Trump was charged last week along with 18 other co-defendants for breaking state election laws in an effort to remain in power. He was released on $200,000 bond. His former attorney, Rudy Giuliani, surrendering on Wednesday. The MTA is expanding its tap-and-go payment system to the Roosevelt Island tram. MTA Chairman Jano Lieber says it's the first time Omni is being expanded outside of subway and bus systems. New Yorkers and visitors have already used Omni at all 472 subway stations on board over 200 local bus routes. And now the Roosevelt Island tram. Nearly 2 million customers already use Omni on a daily basis. Frank Marano and the other side of midnight up next on 77 WABC. Forecast in the Ramsey Mazda Weather Center. Overnight cloudy chance of showers and thunderstorms. Lows in the upper 60s. Later today, showers with a slight chance of thunderstorms. Humid highs in the upper 70s. I'm Bob Brown for 77 WABC. Remember, the news never stops at WABCradio.com. The other side of midnight. Local spotlight. 
I know a lot of what my friend and colleague Curtis Lewa does on the radio is shtick. I mean, really, it's professional wrestling. But the danger of what Curtis does and what he says is when he gets very heated and when he gets very passionate and he sounds like he might be being sincere, whether it's about me or any subject, it's that people might take him seriously. And I got word that... Curtis went on the radio yesterday in the afternoon and actually told people to show up at the homes of two Staten Islanders that are friends of mine, including a couple that uh, I know very well and has a tremendous value for their privacy. And I was all set to go on the air and tear Curtis a new one because this is dangerous and this is the kind of rhetoric that has no place in any sort of civil discourse. And I would hate it if something happened to any of these people that Curtis advocated protesters showing up to their homes. However, our owner, John Katsimatidis, was a step ahead of me and he had Curtis on the Katz and Cosby show last night along with Governor Patterson. Here's how the conversation went down. Some people at City Hall were upset that the fact was you mentioned particular uh, 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 a particular senator or a particular uh, uh, city council person. I mean, we don't really want to. WABC doesn't want to make a target of any particular person. Is that correct? Yes. No. You're absolutely correct. Upon uh, listening to the rally, I should not have mentioned any personal names. I will refrain from that. Both publicly at rallies and naturally over the air. So my and, and WABC does not urge to have demonstrations in anybody's homes or anything like that. You know, you're in a public square in front of the school where where people are are doing it. But please, uh, I mean, you I think you know better. You cannot say, well, let's demonstrate in front of the person's house. Is that correct? No, you're absolutely correct. Uh, although I have been a target of demonstrations in the past, I understand that's not the norm for most people. So I do apologize. Governor Patterson is 100% right, and I am glad Curtis apologized. So I want to give Curtis a shout-out and some credit for apologizing. We all go too far at times on the radio, and it takes a big man to admit that you're wrong and that uh, you should apologize. And I'm glad Curtis did, and I hope no other talk show hosts on our station or any other encourage protesters to show up at anyone's house that is totally inappropriate beam me up to be continued 77 77 wabc mobile app download it now this is the other side of midnight with frank morano they're running a strange program y'all talk radio 77 wabc now here's frank morano This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano, superstar Frank Morano to be precise, and it's that time of the week. By the way, coming up in about 20 minutes, we're going to talk about uh, the election of 2024 and the election of 1968. There are a shocking number of similarities between those two years. We're going to get into it with a uh, professor at Chapman University by the name of Luke 
Nichter. He's got a new book out all about the year that broke politics. Looking forward to that conversation very much. But first, there are some people that need to be called out. They include... The Other Side of Midnight presents Denunciation. Christopher Doyle. Caitlin Cannon uh, was fresh out of Pennsylvania State University embarking on a career, what she thought was a promising career, in television news, when a March 2018 text message changed her life, an old friend reached out with nightmare news. Intimate photos of Cannon were on a website notorious for trafficking in non-consensual pornography or revenge porn. Cannon had sent the photos to an old boyfriend when she was in college and they were still dating. Now, she has won a New Jersey lawsuit against... Her former high school math teacher, after an investigation revealed that the nude selfies were posted from his home IP address. And sure enough, on Friday, Ocean County jury, an Ocean County, New Jersey jury, found that Christopher Doyle, who was Cannon's teacher at Wall High School in New Jersey, disseminated 14 of her nude and semi-nude selfies online. She still has no idea how he got them. However he got them, he shouldn't have been sharing them. So, Christopher Doyle, I do denounce you. I must also denounce the women in Florida who went to a chicken wing restaurant, Papa Bee's in Longwood, which is a suburb of Orlando, tip of the hat to Fred Rubino, And apparently these five women intentionally clogged a toilet inside this chicken restaurant. And this ignited a brawl between this group of women and the employees. A supervisor told authorities the women stuffed a restroom toilet with wads of toilet paper. The women were blamed because they were the only customers in the restaurant. Uh, in the restaurant, a an employee cleaned the bathroom. However, one of the women went inside the bathroom afterward and the toilet was stuffed with toilet paper again. The restaurant supervisor then told the women they needed to leave since it was almost closing time. The supervisor then found that the toilet was clogged again. And the group of women became irate and began yelling when they were told to leave. One of the women punched the supervisor in the face and the other women joined. Kicking, punching, pulling hair and growing and throwing things. What is going on in this world? Who would intentionally clog toilets like that, let alone start punching restaurant workers? And I want to, so to those women and to anybody that would intentionally clog a toilet, I do denounce you. I must also denounce the Atlanta Braves fans who cheered when New York Mets first baseman Pete Alonzo, who is not only a great ball player, but seems like a great guy, when he was hit with a pitch. And I know these two teams have a longtime rivalry, and I root against the Braves like crazy, but... These Braves fans cheered when Pete Alonzo was hit with a 97-mile-per-hour fastball in the wrist. This It led to a, a wrist contusion, which played placed Pete Alonzo on the injured list. These people, these idiots, I'll say that, cheered this. You get hit with a 97-mile-per-hour fastball, they're... You could be seriously injured, maybe even die. And these idiots are cheering. So for you Braves fans, and to anyone that cheered Pete Alonso being hit with that pitch, I do 
denounce you. I must also denounce the creep that snuck up behind a New York City councilwoman and kissed her while she was doing a TV interview in Brooklyn. Sure enough, Brooklyn Councilwoman Ina Vernikov, a Republican who represents uh, the 48th District in Brooklyn. She was doing an interview with CBS New York in Brighton Beach when she was interrupted. Before the reporter could finish asking her a question, a man in a cap suddenly swoops in on Vernikov's left side and gives her a kiss on the cheek. Now, it's a peck on the cheek, but still, you sneak up on a woman from behind like that? And kiss her in that kind of a manner? It's not It's not kosher at all. Not appropriate in the least. And totally non-consensual. So to this creep that's uh, snuck up on Ina Vernikov, I do denounce you. I must also denounce New Jersey. New Jersey has been ranked the worst state to drive in, according to a new study. Researchers with MoneyGeek took cost, congestion, safety, infrastructure, and weather into consideration. They determined New Jersey has the worst congestion and second-worst infrastructure. In The neighboring states all rank poorly, with New York as the 16th worst place to drive. Nebraska, by the way, the best place to drive. But sure enough, New Jersey has been ranked the worst state to drive in. This is not a surprise that any, uh, to anyone that has ever driven in the state of New Jersey. I must also denounce Ankon Varak Chiang. I hope I pronounced that correctly, but he's an American tourist or was an American tourist on the island of Phuket in Thailand, and he was forced to make a public apology and leave the country after using a weed blower to blow cannabis smoke over a busy tourist area. This guy strikes me as a total jerk. I mean, if you're like me and you really despise the smell of cannabis smoke or you just don't want to be inhaling it, to have some idiot blowing this huge... you got to see the video. It's not a little bit. I mean, picture a fog machine blowing cannabis smoke in your direction, and that's almost what occurred here. So I, I think this is totally inappropriate. I'm glad Thailand kicked him out. Ankon Varak Chiang, I do denounce you. John McKee was caught drinking and driving a Jeep. That's not unusual, unfortunately. He was also on meth, also not unusual. But here's what is unusual. The 51-year-old was pulled over by a state trooper in Indiana, not just driving a Jeep, but a Power Wheels Jeep. A Power Wheels Jeep, you know, for children? This guy got drunk and high and then started driving on the street. A child's toy. This guy, John McKee, he is uh, no Henry Kissinger. John McKee, I do denounce you. I must also denounce Lucy Letby, the British nurse who has gotten sentenced to life without parole for killing seven babies. This is also a woman who is ultimately going to hell, as far as I can tell. And then lastly, I want to denounce non-compete clauses. According to a new study by Duke University, non-compete clauses, which I am totally against on freedom grounds, they stifle innovation. 
Researchers by Duke University and the Federal Trade Commission show that non-compete clauses can reduce the rate of high-quality patents by up to 19%. Let's do away with these non-competes. Their time has come. All right. That slams the lid on denunciations for this week. So in just a moment, you are going to hear about 1968 with Luke Nichter, professor of history at Chapman University. We'll talk about it straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Well, what a time, what an interesting era to study. I mean, you think about it. A country is polarized by political, racial, and cultural divides. There's a Kennedy running for president, a former Republican vice president running for president. There's a Democratic incumbent who many people think is a bit past his prime and probably shouldn't run for office again. America's involved in a foreign war overseas. There's a major candidate for president who runs his campaign on a populist, anti-elitist, anti-establishment platform whose detractors say is running a divisive campaign using racial dog whistles. The year, of course, is... 1968. While I know there are a lot of parallels to today, some people say 1968 was the year that broke politics. If that's true of 1968... What in the world is 2024? Here to help us uh, figure that out is a historian and author who's written a fascinating new book about this year. And if history isn't repeating itself today, it certainly seems to be rhyming. I'm very pleased to welcome to the show Luke Nichter, professor of history at Chapman University and author of The Year That Broke Politics, Chaos and Collusion in the Presidential Election of 1968, which uh, just came out a few weeks ago. Luke, it's great to have you on the program. Thanks for joining me. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me on. So when you started writing this book, did you recognize immediately all of the parallels to what's happening today? Well, first, let's begin. Do you accept kind of my premise that there are a lot of parallels between 1968 and 2023 slash 2024? I'll just be honest, as I was hearing you do the intro, I thought, well, which year is he talking about, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, now or back then? Uh, I, 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 you know, I, I don't know that history always repeats itself exactly, but I, I think there's there's an awful lot in common to talk about. I remember Nixon's longtime speechwriter, Ray Price, always said, if the 1860s was an actual civil war, the 1960s were a proxy civil war, and certainly more and more people say something similar, you know, about America today. Yeah, there's a there's a lot of similarities, but I think there's also a few differences. Certainly, the Vietnam War and the draft, you know, that tore the country apart back then is different. The assassinations, I mean, just hearing Tucker and President Trump talk about that possibility is, I hope, a place that we don't go. Uh, so I think there are differences as well, but also an awful lot of similarities. So when you started writing this book, did you recognize all the parallels to today or was it just did it just kind of work out this way that you started writing about this era in history? And here we are. 
Hey, you know, I, I could sit here and say uh, I was so brilliant that I anticipated all this, but it wouldn't be true. You know, I, I think something about the culture wars, to use that term, of the Trump years, I think did did provide a chance to revisit, you know, the, the culture wars of a previous period of the 1960s. Certainly, you know, the Nixon era has gotten such a fresh look in history as a result of President Trump's presidency, the parallels between those two, the friendship that they had. Uh, but obviously, I, I could not have predicted. You know, I started this about five years ago, so there's no mm. way I could have predicted all that 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 went on in the last few years. So, why did you write this book? I know you've written about this era in history before, but why write this book specifically? What were you hoping to explore? Well, I, I kind of started out with just a general sense. You know, it, it's it's fifty. This is fifty-five years ago, so it seems like a long time ago. But a lot of people remember that period. They were on the college campuses. They served in the war. They were drafted, and a lot of times in history, it takes about fifty years for us to have a kind of more mm. dispassionate look to kind of comb through, make sense of what really happened, for records to be declassified by the National Archives for personal papers and diaries and things like that to be opened. So it just seemed like it was time for a, for a fresh look. You know, it's so interesting that you say that because so often if I'm at a bar or a party or just in polite company somewhere, inevitably people know my interest in politics and my interest in history. And someone will ask, what do you think? Who do you think the greatest president of all time is? And who do you think the worst president of all time is? And I always say, you know, I refuse to even consider anybody that's been president in the last 30 years because inevitably there's someone that thinks either Trump or Obama is the worst president of all time or the best president of all time, but it, they're doing that with without any historical context, just based on kind of where the political winds of the day are now. Now, of course, you got to add uh, Biden to the mix because he is a, a hero to some and a villain in other quarters. Um, if people are just tuning in, we're talking with Luke Nichter. He's a professor of history at Chapman University, author of the new book, The Year That Broke Politics, Chaos and Collusion in the Presidential Election of 1968. Let's talk about that title, Luke. Why do folks refer to 1968 as the year that broke politics? How did it break American politics? Well, you know, uh, you know, with your knowledge of history, um, it was just a time period that at home in this country and really around the world that people were just stirred up for a number of reasons. Uh, unrest, you know, looting in the streets, assassinations. At the time, the nation's longest war in Vietnam, a half million troops uh, over there in Southeast Asia, the draft dividing the younger generation and the older generation, uh, I, I think. And But to focus on politics. At the nation, it was a time much like today, closely divided, and within each political party, a lot of division uh, in terms of the, the way to move forward. A lot of uncertainty. Both people in both parties – uh, you know, sort of unhappy with their alternatives, their options, you know, at the voting booth. So I think a, a lot of similarities there. But ultimately, it goes to that image that I have on the cover, that kind of silhouette of Johnson and Nixon in the White House. At the heart of this book, you know, the most controversial argument that I make is that Johnson ultimately preferred Nixon as his successor. Mm. Uh, and, and, you know, that, and I think in modern history, it's hard to find two presidencies that are more connected. Uh, the war certainly continued on into Nixon's first full term. Uh, so much of Nixon's, uh, Johnson's domestic policy, you know, Nixon gets the credit for a lot of things, going to China, going to Moscow. 
it was Johnson who first suggested these things. And so Nixon's presidency, I think, is unusually so, like really a continuation of things that Johnson ran out of time, ran out of political capital to do. And at the heart of that most controversial argument that he preferred Nixon as a successor is a, is a, the, some of the new evidence at the heart of the book is Reverend Billy Graham's diary. Uh, I, this is the first book to feature that, and I've only been allowed the Graham's obviously part of it and reproduce it here in the book. And Graham operated as a messenger between Johnson and Nixon, California Governor Ronald Reagan, former President Eisenhower. He passed messages back and forth, and the content of those messages are in the diary. And that's what allowed me to make that argument that that while Johnson publicly was a proud Democrat, I don't think he would have switched parties like a lot of other Southern Democrats. Uh, I don't know how he voted. But I think he ultimately came to see Nixon as better as a successor for his own personal legacy. You know, that is interesting. And you do reproduce some of the Billy Graham diary, which is not even produced in Billy Graham's authorized biography, where the biographer supposedly had access to everything that he wanted. There's even more stuff in your book that's not in that Billy Graham book. I want to get back to that uh, LBJ-Nixon relationship in uh, just a second. But you deal largely with four primary characters and personalities in the book. You deal with Hubert Humphrey, who was the vice president and the Democratic nominee for president in uh, 1968. You deal with Richard Nixon. You deal with George Wallace. And you deal with Lyndon Johnson. Let's talk about Lyndon Johnson, because uh, Biden came of age at a time in politics where uh, where Lyndon Johnson was very much not a part of history, but a part of the present day. Talk to me a little bit, if you can, about the similarities between uh, Joe Biden and Lyndon Johnson, either as presidents or as people. Well, you know, I, I, I could add one more thing to your intro at the beginning of our conversation. I would also add you know, a, a deeply uh, unpopular president, especially in his own party. Uh, you know, looking ahead to a possible reelection uh, in terms of an LBJ, you know, Biden parallel. You know, I, I think Biden is obviously has a lot of pressures from the, the activist wing of his own party to do certain things policy wise. But, you know, most of the time in U.S. history, if you show me a Delaware senator, I'll show you basically a good southern senator, mm. a good southern Democrat. Um, I remember working on the Hill out of college in the speaker's office, and I know I, I didn't think Joe Biden had a had a radical bone in his body. Uh, and I think Johnson also tried to govern kind of as as a centrist. And the the way that I deal with Johnson in this book is different. Uh, my take is different on a lot of things. Most books about 1968, as soon as Johnson, as March 31st, goes on television, says he's not going to run, he's not going to accept the nomination, um, you know, kind of a postscript at the end of a speech that was on Vietnam. It surprised everybody that he did it that way. And I, I think most books at that point treat him like a lame duck. Uh, the spotlight focuses on all the challengers. That's where the excitement is. I found something different in a lot of the new evidence, tapes, diaries, et cetera, that Johnson by, Johnson, by withdrawing from the ballot, that was not a withdrawal from politics. He simply redirected his energies into influencing the choice of his successor because your successor as a president has a lot to do you know, with your own legacy and history. And I think that's what Johnson became obsessed by in his final months. Very interesting. Uh, Luke Nichter is my guest, and uh, we're talking about the 1968 election, including some parallels to today's election. Would 
Lyndon Johnson have helped the Democrats win in 1968 if he had gotten out a bit earlier? Did he stay in too long uh, before allowing a, I don't know, either a proper Democratic nominating contest to take shape where maybe somebody that would have had more crossover appeal than Humphrey ultimately did would have been nominated? Uh, Was that a tactical mistake if your interest was getting the Democrats elected? Yeah, that's a superb question. And of course, you know, we, those of us who love history, we never consider what ifs, you know, or counterfactuals, but we love them. And you set that up nicely because um, at that time, first of all, I would answer it two ways. First of all, that was a different era. And if you look at the rules for the the Democrats had in 1968, they they didn't change yet. They changed in 72 and 76 under the McGovern Commission. So in 68, you really didn't need to enter primaries. It really wasn't binding in the same way on delegates. There weren't any high-level presidential debates whatsoever that year that could have probed candidates in their campaigns for weaknesses. And and when Humphrey ultimately sort of ran in Johnson's place, he inherited overwhelmingly Johnson's delegate strength and, of course, the loyalty of all the state and county chairmen coast to coast. So it was just different. I think we selected candidates, uh, not chose nominees. I don't want to call it a backroom deal. This is how things were done in that era. So it was a little bit different. And I think the second thing I, I would say in response to your question is people sometimes say, you know, what could Hubert Humphrey have done to have won that campaign? Uh, well, I think one of the easiest things was, and I was a running mate, rather than Maine, kind of moderate Democratic Maine Senator Edmund Muskie, if he had like had like an outgoing Texas Governor John Connolly, very close to Johnson, as a running mate, then Humphrey would have gotten more of that conservative vote, denied it to Nixon, and that's the kind of thing he could have done. That that might have got him over the finish line. But again, Billy Graham. The Billy Graham diary says that he intervened with Connolly in Chicago, kept him off that ticket. Now, I don't know that it would have happened without Graham's intervention and said in a future Nixon presidency, he'll give you, John Connolly, a Democrat, a cabinet post. And he did. Wow. He became Treasury Secretary in 71. Well, you know, so there's all kinds of new things in this diary. It's funny when you when you mention the similarities policy wise to from Johnson to Nixon. I was thinking of the similarities personnel wise from Johnson to Nixon. And obviously Connolly, who was very close to Johnson, ultimately became a leading member of the Nixon administration. And Daniel Patrick Moynihan also very, you know, big part of the Johnson administration, then became a very part, a big part of the Nixon administration. And uh, so it's funny that Connolly was the first person that came to mind when you mentioned that and that you referenced that uh, that kind of Billy Graham intervention in brokering, um, you know, brokering Connolly's role uh, in a Nixon administration. A lot of folks remember what occurred in 1968, uh, not as history, but they remember it back when it was current events. And Eugene McCarthy was the first person to challenge Johnson largely on a, a peace platform, deciding to run against a president of his own party. Ultimately, the momentum that Eugene McCarthy got, which was substantial, a lot of movements, especially on college campuses to get clean for Gene, that kind of thing. That energy largely seemed to be channeled by Robert Kennedy, who seemed somewhat inspired to get into the race 
because of the momentum that Eugene McCarthy had. When Kennedy was killed after the California Democratic primary in 1968, why then was there not a second wave of momentum for Eugene McCarthy? Why was Humphrey able to capture the, the mantle of the party? Does it happen? You just alluded to the kind of how the nominating contest was back then, or is there another factor that I'm missing? It's a great question. I, you know, I think if you look at McCarthy, uh, in most of the books that have written, written, written about the McCarthy campaign or the Kennedy campaign were written by staffers, so you can tell where their loyalties are. But when you sort of take a more objective calm through this time period, I, I'm not really convinced that McCarthy wanted to be president. I think he was running more against the presidency than for it. He, he wanted to be disruptive. He wanted to have a real debate about Vietnam, as you said, outreach to young people on college campuses. He, he took all the risk by being the first one to challenge the incumbent. Nobody will do that today with Biden. I mean, I'm waiting for that to happen. But then Kennedy waited. He waited for McCarthy to take the risk and then capitalized on that. I think a lot of old-time Democrats resented him for coming in, competing with McCarthy for basically the same wing, the same votes and the same wing of the Democratic Party, dividing the party uh, more. But I, I think what you see is I went back to the Gallup polls. And while Vietnam is always a concern of voters, you, after the assassinations, Dr. Martin Luther King in early April and then Senator Kennedy in early June, people begin to flip. Vietnam is always there as a primary concern, but Gallup begins to break out these individual domestic categories, crime, unrest, looting, arson, violence. And after the assassinations is the first time that added together, they overtake Vietnam. And that largely stays that way until November. So I think it was really a shift back to us to issues that were ultimately unfa unfavorable. McCarthy was run on an anti-war campaign, and I think people either dropped out of politics or their concerns changed after those two assassinations yeah. that spring. It makes sense. Talking with Luke Nichter. Let's talk about Richard Nixon. Ultimately, he, of course, was the victor in 1968. Uh, Richard Nixon um, was out of politics. He had not only lost the presidency in 1960, he tried to run for governor of California, lost, and uh, said very famously that it was his last press conference. You wouldn't have Dick Nixon to kick around anymore, and was largely written off. One of the major TV networks did a whole special about the, I forget what they called it, but it was something along the lines of the political obituary of Richard Nixon. For those reasons, Pat Buchanan, who was with Nixon during that 1968 campaign, wrote a book called The Greatest Comeback, and he maintains that Nixon's election in 1968 is, bar none, the greatest political comeback in American history. Based on your research for this book, do you share that view? Was Nixon's win in 1968 the greatest comeback? I think it's unique in, in U.S. history. I mean, Nixon was a loser. I think he wondered himself whether he was a loser. And he spent what's been called the wilderness years, those years, you know, the, as you said, the very close loss in 60 to Kennedy and Johnson, the more decisive loss in 62 for the California governorship. He spent the next five years or so reading, studying, learning, I think maturing. And he came back. He was calmer. He was less partisan. Um, I, th I thought a bit almost like President Trump on the Tucker interviews spoke with a detachment, kind of a personal detachment. A Nixon in 60, it was very different than earlier. And I think ultimately he was a better candidate. And I think I would, I would add one more point. You know, I always say to my students, I, I teach a lot of 18, 19, 20-year-olds, if you show me any election 
and you show me one of the candidates is either the sitting vice president or someone very close to the outgoing president, they've got the hardest job. Because think about how awkward that is to formulate around a meaningful campaign theme. On the one hand, you're saying everything we did for four years or eight years is right, perfect, right. but somehow we have more ideas <laughs> that haven't been done. The cynics of what well, is so great, why didn't you do them already? Nixon had that challenge in 60 with Eisenhower. He's never able to really get it together. Humphrey had that challenge with Johnson in 68. So I think right from the beginning, I think Nixon had that additional edge. And people voted, I think, for Nixon to turn the noise level down, to get to escape the chaos. Nixon's political rise occurred before the chaos of the 1960s. He wasn't tied to it. You couldn't blame him for it. And I think people wanted the noise level turned down. If you look at that campaign of 1960, where it's Nixon versus John F. Kennedy, they're very similar on the issues, both domestically and internationally. In fact, it could really be argued that Kennedy was a bit more hawkish on foreign policy than Richard Nixon was. In 1968, it it seems like it was a bit more of a conservative Nixon than emerged in 1960. Uh, Explain to us kind of the ideological differences between the Nixon campaign of 1960 and the Nixon campaign of 1968. Well, I think you set it up great there. You know, Kennedy had this, uh, not to dwell on him too much, but Kennedy had this technique that late in the campaign, he would flip to the right of the Republican and it would just throw off the Republican who didn't know how to come back from that. He did it with Nixon in 60, and he did it in the Massachusetts Senate race in 52 against Henry Cabot Lodge, where he blamed Lodge for being a rubber stamp on Truman foreign policy. Very strange strategy for a Democrat, and it works. Nixon, I think, saw in 60, he was really the heir to Eisenhower, kind of a, a centrist, almost a liberal kind of Republican. And then I think he saw the pendulum for the party go the other way in 64 to Goldwater. So I think Nixon knew in 68 he needed to be somewhere in between the two and really ride that center lane. See, Republicans have a harder challenge, a much narrower road to, to the finish line than Democrats. Democrats always win by, by party registration advantage. All Democrats need to win is Democrats to vote. Republicans need all Republicans, a good chunk of independence, and some crossovers. It's a harder message to cobble together. So Nixon tried to choose that center lane that put Humphrey on his left, Wallace on his right, and really go after the moderates, the LBJ moderates, who put LBJ over the top in 64. I think Nixon sensed that their votes were up for grabs in 68. And, of course, those same moderates put Nixon over the top in a landslide 72. In um, you alluded to the fact that uh, Johnson might have actually favored Nixon and that uh, Nixon's administration was largely a continuation of the Johnson administration. Why do we think Johnson would have favored Nixon over his own vice president? Do we think it was primarily over policy areas where he might have preferred Nixon to Humphrey or was it more about cultural uh, similarities between the two of them, or was it about the relationship that that, those two men had that might have been stronger than Humphrey? Why would a lifelong Democrat, even privately, want a Republican, a lifelong Republican like Nixon, to win over his own vice president? Well, I think I make two comments. I I couldn't uh, answer that any better when I were talking to one of LBJ's daughters, Lucy, about this. And what Lucy said was, you know, publicly, very different. Democrat, Republican, different personalities, governing styles, uh, policy preferences. But privately, 
they had these they had deep connections. Uh, both grew up in modest means. They knew they didn't go to prep school. They didn't go to the best colleges. They thought the national media looked down on them, party elites, the establishment. Where Lady Bird's diary at one point says when Nixon visits the Johnson White House, you know, I heard Mr. Nixon say Georgetown dinner parties <laughs> with an inflection of voice that could have been Lyndon's. And so I think powerful forces, adversaries, you know, brought them together. But I think the way I would say it best is go back to Billy Graham in the diary. Mm. Uh, one of the messages that's passed between Nixon and Johnson is just after Labor Day. You know, back then, campaigns didn't go on all the time. Labor Day kind of began the high season of the campaign for those final months till November. And Graham passes a message from Nixon to Johnson in the Oval Office. It's an incredible message where Nixon makes a multi-point promise to Johnson, if, if elected, that Nixon wouldn't criticize Johnson by name. He would give Johnson credit for Vietnam when it was all over. He would consult with LBJ in retirement and do everything Nixon could do to give Johnson a good place in history. It's incredible to think of something like that had leaked out. Uh, and I think it's exactly what Johnson wanted to hear at a time when many in his own party were criticizing him. And uh, to, as best we can tell, Nixon largely kept his word on all that to Johnson. I, I think mostly. I mean, I would say not 100 percent. But, I mean, there's Bill Sapphire, others constantly say, you know, Nixon would say, tone it down. He would say something like, don't criticize Johnson. He's had it hard. Mm. Or, you know, I know it's awkward, but he's not hurting us, so don't go after him. Well, what can you tell me about their shared relationship with the head of the FBI at the time, J. Edgar Hoover? Well, they were, I think, both at different times neighbors, and I think ideologically they were pretty close. Obviously very strong anti-communists. Uh, with some of the few supporters of the war all the way to the very end, you know, past the difficult years. Uh, so I think, you know, a, a real certainly not afraid to use surveillance and, and creative techniques to keep an eye on adversaries. Uh, so I think, you know, very, very like minded uh, personal friends, you know, not just uh, close professional associates. Talking with Luke Nichter, his book is The Year That Broke Politics, Chaos and Collusion in the Presidential Election of 1968. It's just a few weeks old. Everyone's talking about it, and uh, I'm looking forward to reading it as well. Luke, um, one of the candidates that people often forget was a candidate back in 1968 was the governor of California at the time, Ronald Reagan. He largely ran as a, a favorite son candidate of the California Republican delegation. Why was Reagan running in 19? 19- 68. Nixon was from California as well. It seems like the two, Nixon and Reagan, knew each other at least a bit, going all the way back to uh, the late 40s. Why was Reagan running? Was he running to actually get elected president? Was he running to influence the direction of the GOP? Or was he running to boost his own future political purposes? Or is it for some other reason? Uh, possibly a combination of those. Uh, Reagan, again, the Graham diary, he, he did outreach to Reagan as well to kind of kiss Graham did not want to see that conservative vote divided, you know, whoever it would go to, ultimately Nixon. And Graham uh, talked to Reagan to kind of figure out what are your plans here? Uh, Reagan, of course, was the dream candidate for conservatives. There still are a few uh, 64 Goldwater Republicans around who are part of that campaign. And if you talk to them today, it's interesting. You would think that Goldwater won in 64. <laughs> uh, you know, they, they were happy to go over the cliff with Goldwater. And, you know, they feel like it was almost more important, finally, to, to nominate a real conservative, uh, you know, in 64 than actually winning. And so the deal with Reagan was that if Nixon didn't have the nomination locked up, or at least on a, on a good path to having it locked up, 
by about Wisconsin, uh, then Reagan would be free to move in. And I think he would have. Um, he wasn't b- quite battle tested. This was Reagan of 68, not mm. Reagan of 80, who who is a much more mature politician. But I mean, the good looks, the money. I mean, this was Reagan in his in his in his real prime, and he ultimately loyally you know supported Nixon. Yeah, but I think he was just kind of looking over Nixon's shoulder the whole time. And if Nixon had made you know too many errors, I think Reagan would have moved in. The um, I, I, you are just such a fascinating guy, and there's so many other areas that I want to explore with you. But I'm almost out of time. But uh, so you got to come back, and we got to continue soon. However, uh, there's a few other areas that I want to delve into with you before we before we run out of time here. I got to ask you about George Wallace. Uh, I think a lot of people know George Wallace as the governor of Alabama. He's been so. Uh, associated with segregation throughout history. He's been so associated with uh, racist tendencies that were big, particularly in the American South at that time. He won five states as a third-party candidate in 1968. Was there more to Wallace's campaign in 1968 than simply segregation and race? Yeah, I think there was. Uh, and, and Wallace, like a lot of uh, the figures we're talking about, was not static. I mean, he was reacting to that the events of that decade just like everybody else. And if you look at Wallace, it's interesting. His first run for governor was 58, and he was a moderate, and he loses. No mention of race or segregation. Right, he was endorsed by the NAACP, if I recall. You got it. And 62, he shifts right. That's when he goes after the the Klan uh, endorsement. Uh, His inaugural address, it's, you know, segregation today, tomorrow, forever. He will stand in the schoolhouse door personally to block integration at the University of Alabama. But as as often happens, he gets a taste of national politics in 64, moderates his message, becomes kind of like a Huey Long populist demagogue, you know, conservative Democrat. Um, and, and enters three primaries and does exceptionally well. 68 is his first full-bore 50-state campaign, does the impossible, gets on the ballot in all 50 states. To do that, you got to navigate 50 sets of state laws, 50 sets of legal challenges by Democrats and Republicans everywhere you go. He gets over 10 million votes, and I would argue his campaign is the most fascinating because all populists since on both sides of the aisle, more recently I'd say Republicans with Trump, have borrowed from that Wallace playbook, anti-elite, anti-establishment. Uh, and and uh, and I you know I don't think the phrase "drain the swamp" ever occurred to George Wallace, but if it had, I'm sure he would have used it. Uh, no, no doubt about it. Wallace had been a Democrat his whole political life, and then in subsequent presidential elections, went f- back to running for president as a Democrat. Why did he choose to run third party in '68 rather than run as a Democrat for president in '68? Yeah, Wallace's records in uh, which are in uh, Montgomery, Alabama, at the state library. What they say is that he wanted to be free to criticize both major parties. Uh, he had problems with both. He had problems that the Democratic Party had become a big government party. He thought government overreach was primarily a Democratic problem. He didn't like the Republicans in lots of ways, too. And part of that was heritage growing up in the South, which basically one party for decades. Um, so he wanted to be free to criticize both sides. And so that gave him the platform to do that. He ran on a on a ticket called the American uh, Independent, uh, Independent right. Party, exactly, which existed, but it was really just really a vehicle. It wasn't really a real political party. It was just a vehicle so he could run. That Because it's, it's a lot easier to pick a party that exists than also to create a party and then run on a third party. You wrote in your column – well, let me ask you this before we, uh, before we run out of time. If you 
you had to pick, and maybe this is an unfair question, maybe it's not, President Trump, is he more similar and his candidacy today more similar to that of Nixon's in 68 or that of Wallace's in 68? Or, for that matter, Humphrey? I think I think uh, there's a kind of Nixon-Wallace um, political continuum, and certainly Trump is somewhere in that, that continuum. He, he goes, for example, Lyndon Johnson was the last president to win the kind of blue-collar, lower-middle class. That's my background. I don't have a, I don't have an elite background um, to win them as a voting block in 1964. It's amazing to me how much energy Trump has put into to winning, locking up that vote. That's Wallace, but it's also a bit of Nixon's silent majority, mm. which is the term he coined, which Trump borrowed heavily from in the past few years. So I, he's he's kind of a mixture. I mean, he, Nixon was an insider. To politics. Trump is an outsider. Wallace is somewhere in between. So I think you combine those two playbooks uh, along with a very astute ability on TV, understanding of media, as, as Trump has. And, and I think that's how you get Donald Trump. If um, well, I'll end with this for real. I'm way late here. But uh, you wrote in your column in The Wall Street Journal that Richard Nixon would not have been surprised by Russia's invasion of Ukraine. How come? Uh, Did Nixon have a crystal ball that was lacking in the Biden White House? So this is a a, an op ed I wrote about a month ago in The Wall Street Journal, uh, a letter from Nixon to Clinton. Fascinating seven page letter. You can actually click on the letter and see Mm -hmm. the actual letter with Bill Clinton's handwriting. And it's, it's, it's really interesting. Nixon had just spent two weeks in Russia and in Ukraine and come back. And he knew the Russian leadership was in trouble. They were shifting right. They were looking more authoritarian. Yeltsin was in trouble. Nixon couldn't see what was coming next. I mean, Yeltsin was kind of – he made it for a few more years until 1999. The letter is from the, uh, 93, early 94. Nixon dies that year in 94. So Nixon didn't live to see Putin, uh, but he set it up perfectly in the letter that this is what's coming in Russia. Wow. So he predicted largely the rise of a leader like Putin and the kind of the uh, the foreign policy ambitions that a leader like that would have. That's crazy. And uh, people can read it. I'm going to link to it on my Facebook page. People check it out. Facebook.com slash Morano fan. Luke, is there any sort of political bent to your book? Are, are conservatives going to hate it? Are liberals going to love it? Or, or is it reverse? Or is this something that everybody will get something out of, do you think? Well, probably like you and, and, and some in the audience, when I see a new political book, that voice inside my head says, especially if it's an academic, what's the agenda right. here? You know, who's, well, who's the, the favorite? I, you know how these cynical talk radio listeners are. That's how they view the situation as well. But, you know, my background, look, I'm blue-collar, uh, lower-middle class, industrial, Midwest, and up in Ohio, Toledo area, popular with Wallace, but also Nixon, uh, Kennedy. I mean, it used to be called a purple state, although it went, Ohio went twice for Trump by eight points. I take a something-for-everyone approach. Uh, I had cooperation from all four major sides, Johnson, Humphrey, Nixon, Wallace. Talked to all the kids, the families, 85 staffers, and I present those sides. I think if one of those sides reads that only that part of the book, they would see it, and, and, and they, it would be something they would recognize and think that I could try to get it accurate. My goal was not to have an agenda. It was to, to really show why the American people voted the way they did. And I think for readers to do that honestly, you've got to show the candidates you know, the way that they would want to be uh, presented. Well, I can't wait to read the book, and uh, it's been great talking with you. I hope we could do this again soon. 
I'd love to. My pleasure. Thank you. Absolutely. We've been talking with Luke Nichter. Uh, if you're interested in learning about uh, a little more about what we've been talking about, check out the new book. It's available on Amazon or wherever books are available. It's called The Year That Broke Politics. If you want to comment on any portion of our conversation, you're welcome to give me a call, 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. This day in the year 2005 that Hurricane Katrina first made landfall. Boy, what a mess that was. What a disaster that was. We're going to get to your calls in just a moment. 800-848-9222 if you want to weigh in. Six open lines. The person that will greet you is Kevin, who is uh, sitting in the Kenneth chair. Uh, Kevin, how are you enjoying being a part of our, our staff while Kenneth is away? Having the time of my life. Wonderful. Great. I love that degree of enthusiasm. That uh, is a stark contrast to some of the other substitute telephone talent coordinators that have been in that chair uh, over the c- course of the last three years. What, are you uh, are you with us again on Monday, or is today our last day with you? No, yeah, I'm here Sunday night into Monday morning. Okay, great. All right, so uh, so good. You should be a pro by then. All right, uh, Sal is in Bayonne. What's on your mind, Sal? Hey, hello, Frank. Uh, I just want to tell you. I just want to make this statement concerning the thing about about Nixon and Trump and and, and a little bit. Uh, I, I feel I feel that we should have ideas from both sides. Liberal and conservative, not, not, not progressive liberal. I'm talking about like traditionalist liberal, like like uh, like uh, like Bobby Kennedy Jr. He, he, he believes that we should have uh, 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 paid leave for for uh, for, for vaca- paid vacation. Uh, we should have uh, education. Uh, vouchers. We, sh- we should have some good social programs. Yeah, I mean, look, I'm for thanks, Sal. I'm for good ideas wherever they come from. I think that's one of the worst things about society these days is uh, we've become so trained in some instances 
to, oh, if an idea is from a Republican, it's got to be bad or it's got to be good. Same thing if you have the opposite political point of view, if an idea comes from a Democrat. You're almost trained to view it one way or another. Yeah, I agree. Look, I think we need a vibrant, multi-party democracy as far as I'm concerned. All right, uh, 800-848-9222. If you want to comment, we'll get to more of your calls after the top of the hour. I want to encourage you to join the Facebook group. Go to facebook.com slash groups slash Radio Morano. That's facebook.com slash groups slash Radio Morano. Or you can just search Morano Radio Fans and Haters on Facebook. And it's a great way not only to know what songs are being played on this show regularly, but it's a great way to interact with other listeners of the show. And I'd love to get more people posting about topics that we have covered on the show. I have been having to work overtime with people trying to post irrelevant things that we have not covered on this show. So do us a favor. Be part of the solution. Post something relevant to the show. All right. Um, this is uh, this is interesting. We may have seen the last $20,000 car in our lifetime. We'll get into it in just a minute. I'll tell you about that. And uh, Noam Layden is here. So we're going to go around the world and get a look at some news that you can use with Noam Layden in just a bit. We'll take your calls as well. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Until next hour, in the words of the great Bob Grant, help control, excuse me, your influence counts. Use it. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They run in a strange program, y'all. Talk Radio 77 WABC. Now, here's Frank Morano. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I am Frank Morano. Well, the wisdom about saving money when you need to buy a car is generally stick to mass transit. But if the bus simply isn't your thing or available, brace for a budget-shattering event. Cox Automotive found that the Mitsubishi Mirage was the only new model of car going for less than $20,000 last month. The only one. So there is now only one new car that you can buy for less than $20,000. The humble hatchback may make your Prius look like a race car, but it's $19,205 average selling price in July really does look kind of like a mirage in the heat of this auto market. According to Cox reports, a middle-of-the-road new car 
cost over $48,000 in July. That's up 30% since uh, 2019. Wow. And used cars are no better. The average July price was $27,000. That's also a 30% hike from 2019. These pricey cars that most of us rely on to get places have been straining family budgets. Now, in our house, that was certainly the case. Fortunately, my wife and I work different hours, so we we now share one vehicle, which has saved us a little bit of money. It takes over 42 weeks of median household income to cover the average cost of a new car. On top of the high prices, high-interest auto loans are also burdening auto owners. Last quarter, a record 17.1% of new car owners had a monthly payment above $1,000, according to this, uh, this data. This helps explain why auto loan delinquencies have been rising this year despite a very strong economy with exceptionally low unemployment. America's obsession with supersized cars is, they say, partially to blame for the high prices since car makers have ditched affordable compact vehicles. Isn't that a shame that if you're looking to just get an affordable small car just to get you around town, You really can't buy one. I think that's awful. Pandemic-related supply chain uh, problems also threw a little bit of a wrench into production. That created a car shortage and let auto producers slap exorbitant price tags onto windshield. But despite the lack of cheaper models on the market, new car prices have slowly begun to fall as dealers are reporting having more cars Sitting on their lots, electric vehicles are getting discounted the most as uh, car manufacturers are engaging in a is kind of a price war. So that's where we are. Uh, thoughts, questions, comments, 800-848-9222. You're welcome to weigh in on uh, anything we've covered over the course of the last three hours. Noam Layden is uh, going to be here in about 20 minutes. Looking forward to talking with him. One of the things that I've been on a lifelong mission to do is reform the political system, to completely upend the political system. To that end, I recently had the opportunity to speak with Lee Drutman. He's a fellow with New America and author of a book called Breaking the Two-Party Doom Loop. And he's a big believer, as am I, although we have a little bit of a different way of approaching it in proportional representation. But we both agree that there needs to be political reform in this country. Before you can fix any of these other problems, whether it's uh, gun deaths among children going up, whether it's climate change, whether it's the border crisis, whether it's crime, before you can fix any of these problems, you have to fix the political system so that you don't have special interest control of the levers of government. And so I I interviewed Lee Drutman recently, and this is a podcast exclusive, which has gotten a great deal of positive feedback from people that have heard it. And we talk about why the political system needs to be reformed, 
a lot of folks are going to listen to this wherever they fall on the political spectrum and say, look, you guys are wasting your time talking about these pie in the sky political reform ideas when in reality we've got a lot of real problems in the country right now and on the planet now. We're dealing with problems like climate change, uh, high taxes, people can't afford their rent. We're dealing with crime. We're dealing with a border crisis. Uh, isn't our time better spent working on those problems and finding solutions to those those problems rather than pontificate about our ideal political system. I mean, there are solutions to those problems. The question is, why aren't we adopting them? And the answer is because we have a dysfunctional and broken political system in which both parties would rather have issues to campaign on than, than actually make progress on, on solutions. So until we fix the political system, we're not going to you know, fix everything else. I think he makes a very strong point. If you want to hear that whole interview with Lee Drutman, you can go to Frank Morano Interviews and More on any podcast app, or you can just go to Red Apple Podcast Network and search Frank Morano Interviews and More and scroll down to my interview with Lee Drutman, D-R-U-T-M-A-N, this week. You know, a lot of people, um, much more than I expected, actually, they listened to that interview this week and said they thought the interview was so interesting, th- so thought-provoking, and so compelling that they wished that I did air it in its entirety on the radio. It's funny. I thought it was going to be too into the weeds. I thought people were going to be too—I um, don't know if bored is the right word—but I thought it was a little, uh, a, a little into the weeds. So, sure enough, that has not been the reaction that I've gotten so far. So, if you want to hear it. You can uh, check it out at uh, Frank Morano Interviews and more. 800-848-9222. Chris is in the Catskills. Hello there, Chris. Hey, good morning, Frank. Morning. Real quick on the car thing. I, I got a car, had to drive two hours up to Utica, New York, back over four years ago, and I ended up getting a $35,000 car for 25000 and I was looking for a used car of that make and model and the price was so low on the internet saying it was a used car. I thought it was a mistake. Long story short, it was a brand new 2018. They had two of those makes and models that had been sitting on the lot for a year and nine months well, at that's that great. time. Uh, but I but, mean, um, the problem is still that there's a, a lack of affordable car options. Uh, but you know, my, my car is the high end, like sort of mid range model. But you right, know, I, at 30 but I, I am talking it. about a situation that goes beyond just you. It kind of, it's a situation affecting everybody. But so I, I was, I was intrigued. I woke up and heard uh, probably the second half of your interview with the author, um, and I look, I looked the book up online. You can get it brand new hardcover on Amazon for thirty three seventy four. It got. Four out of six out of five star well, ratings. Well, what from, if I shop around a little bit the way you did for your 2018 vehicle? Can I get a used version that's good quality for less than that? I don't know if you could. I have a question for you, though, that I was thinking about it. I guess it's similar to what you asked the author to compare and contrast. I'm adding the word populism to it. Trump's style of of modern populism that he's been using since 2015 versus the uh, premise premises in in sort of applicational theories behind the campaigns that were run by 
Humphreys and Nixon in 68. How would you compare and contrast that yourself? Wait, so repeat the question. How would I compare the uh, – re, you repeat the question. I, I'm not – I don't follow. So the populist style of campaigning and the base of voters that Trump is is trying to – is resonating with and is trying to resonate with, how would you compare and contrast that with the style of populism that – the candidates in the 68 election used, particularly Nixon and Humphreys. Well, look, I haven't done... And Wallace, not yeah, all of them, actually. Yeah, thank you, Chris. Yeah, I haven't done the, the kind of research that um, that Luke has done, which is why I asked him the question. If I knew the answer, I'd just give it to you. But I think, look, there are a lot of similarities between Trump and Wallace and Trump and Nixon, probably less so Hubert Humphrey, Although Humphrey's opposition to the Vietnam War does sound very similar to some of the messaging that Trump has said over the years with respect to opposition to the Iraq War and opposition to the Ukraine War. So I think maybe the similarity to Humphrey is on foreign policy messaging. But I see a lot of parallels. You know, uh, I don't want to repeat everything Luke said because, you know, people should just go back and listen to the interview. But uh, the silent majority aspect of what Nixon said um, with Trump, Wallace denounced. You remember what was going on in the 60s, those riots and every all the time. Like Trump, Wallace denounced anarchists in the streets. He condemned liberals for trying to squelch the free speech of those they disagreed with. And he ran against the elites of Washington and the mainstream media. And he vowed to halt Wallace. He vowed to halt the giveaway of your American dollars and products to other countries. Who does that sound like? I mean, it sounds exactly like Trump. And I think there's a reason that uh, a lot of um, a lot of people that were Wallace supporters in 68 are kind of Trump supporters now. I, I, you know, I read the book by George Wallace, Jr., who is the son of two governors, both George Wallace and Lurleen Wallace. And he was an elected official himself in Alabama as a Republican. And a couple of years ago, I I invited him on the radio. He was super nice, but he said he didn't want to come on. And the impression that I got is that he doesn't want to, he doesn't want to relive every aspect of every racist thing his father ever did. And I don't get the sense that he wants to answer all these questions about Trump and Wallace and racism. That wasn't really going to be how I handled the interview, but whatever. He didn't want to do it, so I didn't push it. But maybe I'll reach out to him again because I think there are um, a stunning number of similarities between Trump, Wallace, Trump, Nixon. There are a lot of differences, too, but there's some similarities. 800-848-9222. Chris is on Long Island. Hello, Chris. Hey, how's it going, Frank? Well, so all in all, the, it's going the, well. Thank you. The, the biggest contributing factor with the cars, there's a few of them, but number one are the interest rates right now. I'm in the car business for the better part of 12 years, and the dealers pay, they have what's called the floor plan. So they pay interest per unit. They're not buying the cars. They're paying interest on each car that sits there. So just like the consumer, the dealers are also affected by the mm. high rates. So the manufacturers are not going to inundate the their dealer network with a huge amount of cars sitting in the lot because 
they can't really afford to keep the cars there either. Interesting. And then you also put yeah, you also put the fact that they're pushing the whole electric thing down everybody's throats. Those are more expensive cars to build. We're never going to see the cars pre-pandemic prices. I don't think ever again. Hopefully, it will get better. But this is going to be the norm now, the way the car pricing is. It's just kind of where everything is. If you see somebody driving a high-end car today, they're paying for it dearly. There's no more great deals that they used to incentivize the cars either. So it's just kind of, you know, where we're going to be. And it's, you know, is there the days any, of all that are, are far behind us. Is there any reason to be optimistic? Let's say you're a... Uh... Let's see you're let's say you're an 18-year-old young man or young woman listening to this program right now hoping to be able to afford a car either a used car or a new new car in the next year or two. You see any reason that that person should be optimistic about that? Unless the rates come down frank now. Really? And, and again, and the, the used car is the same thing. The used car rates are even higher. You know, pre-pandemic you would maybe 1 2% on a leased vehicle, maybe 3 that has, you know, tripled or quadrupled. It's crazy. And if it's a used car and the person's credit isn't that great, the rates could be up to 15 17%. Wow. Jeez. Hey, thanks for the yep. ed- education there, Chris. Appreciate it. 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. Uh, Rich is on Staten Island. Hello, Rich. Oh, Frank, uh, good morning. Nice to speak with you. Thanks. And uh, i just like to say that, you know, for people that uh, are lonely and feeling rejected and want to be loved, the best place to go is to uh, use car lot because <laughs> you'll be for an hour and you'll get follow-up phone calls of people always wondering how you're doing and uh, just they always make you feel very uh, welcome. So yeah, especially especially if you go to a chain restaurant afterwards, you, then you'll have a whole day of uh, of fake fr- friends fawning over you. I like that. And, and and you could always find that suit jacket that you got rid of twenty years ago. You'll see the guy wearing it. <laughs> I love it. But Frank, I just wanted to say that many people now seem to be uh, that had leases that maybe got them at the beginning of COVID. And now they're coming due. Many people are actually buying that car because they know it has greater value than if they gave it back to the dealership or to the uh, car manufacturer. And I just know many people are actually buying the uh, vehicles uh, outright rather than, you know, having to get banged over the head again getting a new vehicle. Yeah, I- I've noticed that same trend as well, Rich. Thank you. You know, in my case, my... Uh, my car was a lease, and I actually, because the price of what my car was going for had gone up, I actually turned the car in at the end of the lease, and they gave me, I forget what, I mean, I think, I think three or four thousand dollars at the end of it, because I could have, I could have, as one listener suggested, and I, I'd like to get that guy some dinner or something, but somebody suggested this as a caller. The caller said, "What you should do is buy it out and then immediately resell it." And you'll make all the money because of how high the price of this car has gone. And so I said I was going to do that. So to save myself the trouble, I talked to the dealership that I got it from first. And they said, no, 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 we'll give you that money. Spring to us, we'll give you whatever it was. Maybe might have even been $5,000. This is a year or so ago. But uh, it was a it was a big uh, a big help. I'm glad that guy told me about it. I wouldn't have been hip to it. 800-848-9222. Marie is in Flanders. Hello, Marie. Oh, you're so sweet, Frank. Thank you for taking my call. Sure. One quick thing, two quick things, because 
I'm a purple girl. I'm independent. You know, they always change that name on the on your registration voters thing in the 70s, 80s, and 90s. That, that title has been changed from liberal to independent, but it's my 33rd happy wedding anniversary. And I just wanted to call and tell you. Oh, that's great. A happy anniversary. And what do you guys have planned? I don't know. We're going to go to the beach if it doesn't rain. But the other quick thing is you're talking about cars. People out here in the island, they love those big trucks. They love the big trucks. They they say bigger is better, right? But I, I drive my mommy's little 2010 Kia Soul. I have my mother's soul. She passed away. I inherited in 2015. She's still running. Great gas mileage. Uh, you know, a car is a car. It gets you from here to there. I think you feel the same way. And cars are expensive. And I know someday I'm going to have to replace her. But, Frank... I love your show and you. a lot of politics. I watch Trump on the TV again. They're not going to put him in jail. I even know that. But anyway, have a good day and, and enjoy that baby boy. Oh, you know he'll it. Be 30. He'll be 30 one day. You'll yep. see. Thank you, Marie. Today is he is uh, 21 months old today. So uh, it's hard to believe he's 21 months old. Old enough to drink, at least chocolate milk. 800-848-9222. Russell is in North Carolina. Hello, Russell. Hey, Frank. Hey, listen, uh, we've actually, my wife and I have had experience with these uh, mirages, and we actually pawned one off. Our 18-year-old daughter just got her license, so one's hers now. I have a 2023 Accord that I got, by the way, for 3.9% financing. Anyway, I get better my gas mileage with the Accord than I did with the Mirage. Oh, and really? So, yeah, and I had, you know, my first new car was a 1997 Ford Escort. I loved that car. Got great gas mileage. I had sex in uh, in it, on it, Wonderful. everything. That's great. And it was, a great, it was a great car, yeah. And, um, and I got to tell you, but hey, with the Mets thing, what about nails, man? Yeah, should be. yeah, you know, because uh, a lot of listeners around the country didn't hear that uh, commentary, so I'm going to avoid, whole, uh, you know, commenting on that. But if people want to know what Russell's talking about, they can, uh, again, go to the podcast, Frank Morano Interviews and more, and just uh, listen to w- one of my local commentaries. We do get into the New York Metropolitans a bit. Hey, speaking of baseball, Saturday, I, I told you we did this uh, this charity softball game where I collided with my friend John Tobacco, and I was running full speed uh, from home plate to first base, trying to beat out an infield hit. He was playing first base. My wife fielded my my ball, my ground ball, and threw a throw that was kind of wide, and he basically moved to try and catch it, and... I he he was right in my way between myself and first base, and I basically ran through him. He got hit in the shoulder and knee. I got whacked pretty well in the chest, and I got to tell you, not only does my left, the left side of my chest, I don't know if it's my rib rib cage or my chest wall or something. Not only does the left side of my chest still hurt, I am pretty sure it's gotten worse because now, and maybe this is part of the healing process, I hope so, but now, and this wasn't the case two days ago or five days ago, now when I sneeze, cough, or laugh, 
I am in real pain on the, my left side. When, you know, some of the people in the panel, the midnight, the, uh, the midnight panel a couple hours ago w- would make jokes or everything, and I would genuinely laugh. I was really in pain. So I was talking to my wife about it yesterday because I woke up and I was still hurting. Uh, same spot. I, I thought after maybe a good night's sleep or two, maybe, or a good day's sleep, maybe it would feel better. It did not. And I said to her, she said, you know, you gotta, you gotta go get an x-ray. She said, go to the doctor. Go get an X-ray, and so that's what I'm going to do. If uh, if it's not better by Monday, I'm going to give myself the weekend. And if it's not at least significantly better by Monday, I am going to uh, I'll make an appointment. I hate going through this whole rigmarole of making an appointment, get an X-ray. But my other my other issue is, what if it is a broken rib or something? What can they really do? Nothing. Yeah. So what's the point? Because I had broken ribs, and they don't do anything. Yeah. But, they used to wrap them, but now they don't do anything. So I, is it even worth it for me to go to the doctor? I mean, you might want to see where it is just in case, but I think by now, if so it was it, something that would puncture your lung, it would have yeah. happened by now. Oh, so just leave it alone. But I would say, yeah, I mean, if you want to get an x Just right then, here. That's like, right right here. Yeah, that's, uh, it could be a rib. But, and that's the only reason that you get x-rays, is to just see to make sure. And it's already been a week. Yeah, well, less a little less than a week. Right. Yeah. So Saturday to if, Friday. If it would have been something that could hurt you, you would have probably gotten hurt by yeah. now. Yeah. Okay. Well, that, that makes me feel better. You know, my general philosophy with any health ailment, no matter what it is, whether it's a physical injury or whether it's a cold, a sore throat, whatever, my general philosophy, and I'm not joking, I'm serious about this, is ignore it and hope it goes away in a couple of days or, or a week or two weeks. And you know what? You would be shocked, or maybe you wouldn't, at how often that's effective. Most of the time, if you ignore something, and I'm not giving any medical advice by any means, most of the time you ignore something, it does go away. It does go away. But sometimes it doesn't. And then you always hear when when it's the times that it doesn't, you always say, where were you? Why didn't you come into the doctor the moment this was an issue? So we'll see. I am hoping this falls in the category of uh, of it goes away. Isn't, we'll that like, isn't that like the old adage when you go, hey, doctor, when I do this, it hurts. Yeah, so don't, don't do, do that. that. Right, exactly. By the way, uh, are you doing a, another edition of the darker side of midnight uh, today, Mr. Matt Place? We are doing one today because it is Elias's last day. Oh, I didn't know that. So I will be doing it with Elias today. Uh, all right. Show. Well, that that's about big. an hour from now. That's big. All right. If people want to check that out, same deal. Just subscribe to the Darker Side of Midnight or on any podcast app, or go to RedApplePodcastNetwork dot com. Uh, we're going to talk to Noam Laden in just a bit. Mary Beth, uh, you don't think it's a good idea that we have Noam Laden on the show, do you? I think it's a great idea. I am a big fan of his. You know, Frank, um, he's so approachable, he's so knowledgeable, and the way he conveys the news, no one wants to hear the news anymore today because a lot of it, you know, it kicks you right in the gut and you're like, is life ever going to get better? Isn't life horrible? It's just the way he conveys the news, and he, he explains things without explaining them if you get my drift he's not hitting you over the head with his knowledge absolutely he's he's cluing you in i'm so excited about this same here well with that kind of a build-up we can only let you down so uh, we'll see what happens mary beth you're not and i i was on hold so i i didn't hear i mean i was talking to the 
call screener and I didn't hear what's wrong with your rib or that area. Did you I, do I, something? That yeah, you it was a, a, a collision in uh, in softball last weekend. Oh, go to the doctor. You know, see, women would go right to the doctor. Come on. Yeah, I guess that's why they live longer, right? 800-848-9222. Dave is in Boston. Hello, Dave. Hey, Dave. I mean, yeah. Frank, Um, Sorry about that, Frank. It's okay. I get a little nervous. Hey, I just want to give you a little heads up. Sam's Club, I don't know if you guys got one in New York or not, but you can get a lot of books used from Sam's Club, Dirt Cheap. And they also do it dirt cheap online. They'll send it right to you. Dave, believe it or not, thank you. I was kind of joking with that guy because he made such a big deal about how he was going all over the place getting a cheap car. And then he says, and you can buy this book new, $33, which is expensive for a book. But um, I have all my sources scoped out for used books, both in brick and mortar and online. Honestly, if I bring significantly more books into our house my wife is going to is going to go crazy what you say makes no sense i mean she is up to here i was very proud of myself because we had people coming to uh, pick up donations of stuff last week and she uh she said i want you to pick out at least 10 books that you're willing to donate and i picked out 11 so i feel like she saw that i was making an effort now since then i've acquired four more since last week, but at least at least I'm trying here. Uh, hey, my friend uh, Mason Mason, the uh, doctor, is uh, on the line. Mason, how are you? It's great to talk with you. Frank, good. How are you doing, man? Great shows the past couple of nights. Well, thank really you. Listening. Yes. I'm listening to you, though, about the ribs. I heard everything. I want you to put ice packs on it at home when you have time. Yeah, I was just reading also, about that online, and that appears to be one of the things that you should be doing that I have not done. If you could get a chest X-ray, I'm off, so I would have you come in. But if you could get an X-ray of the ribs, I'm sorry, not chest X-ray. But you may not need that because what you said is absolutely correct. What It's not going to change your management. They're not going in there to fix the fractured rib. But why I called you, important, is to make sure you take, put your hands on the wall, take deep breaths in and out, just in case it is fractured, you don't want it to do anything to the lungs. So do that. That's a very good thing. Um, well, how often do. should I be doing that? You could do that a few times a day. You know, take a couple of deep breaths, like if you're in the studio now, put your hands on the wall. Uh, bend your knees and take in All right. and out. I, I will in try that. I will try that, Mason. Oh. Thank you, my friend. Let's talk soon. You oh, Absolutely. Have a nice, be safe, but do it. I will. Be I well. will. Thank you, Mason. Appreciate that. All right. The one and only Gnome Laden will take us around the, new, around the world with some news that you can use straight ahead. Other side of midnight with Frank Morano.
Here comes the weekend, and uh, somebody that is starting his work week right before it's time to leave for the weekend is uh, an illustrious news anchor, news reporter, occasional talk show host, our news or- uh, news director here at the Red Apple Audio Network, a good friend of mine for uh, almost 20 years, the one and only uh, Noam Layden. Noam, it's great to see you. It's great to be on your show. I think this is uh, my first time ever. Well, I, I think you might I think you might have been on once when you first well, came I, back. Oh, okay. I think so. I don't know. Hmm. Uh, but uh, it's great to have you nonetheless. Thanks. Now, so you were, uh, you were, you were, this is your first day back. You were off this week. Right? I was. But uh, here I am. Uh, I got big news for you. Okay. Uh, out of Spain. Do you want to hear this? Yes. Up? This is big. So Spain won the Women's World Cup last week. That is news. And it is big. You know, not in America, we don't really care right. that much about soccer, let's face it. But around the rest of the world, there is nothing bigger than soccer, football, right? So Spain wins the Women's World Cup 1-0 over the U.K. on Sunday. You can imagine the celebrations in Spain are just over-the-top sure. crazy, right? Sure. But that's not what they've been talking about since that win on Sunday. There was a moment that was transmitted all around the world in the post-game celebrations that has embarrassed the uh, country of Spain ever since. The head of the Spanish Soccer League grabbed one of the female soccer players after the game was over and kissed her on the lips oh, for what was a couple seconds long. And uh, it was transmitted around the world. I mean, there's nothing bigger than the world. I saw Cup. that image, yes. And uh, ever since then, there's been this debate of whether he should step down and whether she was upset by the fact that the head of the Spanish Soccer League grabbed her and kissed her in this post-game celebration. So fast forward to today. It's a big day in Spain. The entire country's watching. There will be a formal hearing where the head of the Spanish Soccer League will go before this tribunal where they will decide whether he needs to step down or not for that kiss that was seen around the world. Has the player... Um, indicated whether this kiss was welcome or not. So Jenny Hermoso, she's one of the best players on the team. At first she said, well, you know, we got caught up in the emotion of the moment. We had won the World Cup. No big deal. That was her first moment afterwards. But then she said, all my comments further going forward will be through the official soccer union, the female soccer union. And the female soccer union says this kiss was not welcomed at all. It was terrible. It was embarrassing. It was horrible. I didn't want this guy's lips on my lips. This is not, he was not part of my celebration. I had won this World Cup for Spain. And so she didn't say she wants him gone, but essentially she said he needs to step down. You know, I am uh, I am not a an overly aggressive Me Too person, meaning, you know, I, I think if there's legitimate harassment or certainly assault, I, I think that's certainly something that should be rooted out. But I think a lot of the cases that we hear about that fall into this Me Too era that get people um, area, that get people canceled, that get people fired, that get people publicly castigated, I think it's really, uh, really insignificant. And I'm no fan of Andrew Cuomo, for instance, but I I thought the overwhelming number of instances that were chronicled in that Andrew Cuomo report were right. were bubkiss. But in this instance, and this is not dissimilar from this uh, this story that I did in denunciation of this this creep who snuck behind Ina Vernikov and and kissed her yeah. while she was being interviewed. In this instance, if the kiss was non consensual and it's 
are in the workplace, I mean, I can understand why people are making a little bit of a big deal about it. I, I get that there's cultural differences with Spain and the, what, what we're accustomed to, which is rapidly becoming a Puritan society. <laughs> yes, we are. But, but I mean, that's not right. You shouldn't be able to go up to a woman that doesn't want to kiss and kiss her on the lips. Well, you might not be shocked. It's separated along male, female, right? right? So people in Spain, the men, will tell you, hey, we're a warm country. We like to hug. We like to kiss each other. This was just a moment where he was celebrating this great moment for Spain. How many times have they won a World Cup? Not very many, right? He wanted to celebrate. Uh, women saying, no, 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 we're tired of Spanish man, men using these moments to do things like this. And so uh, actually just before I walked in here, I got uh, uh, over the AP Associated Press says that apparently this president, his name is Luis Robiales, he is going to resign. Apparently, oh. he has written a letter of resignation. See, then now I feel like that's a little too harsh of a punishment. And he will handle the, hand this letter over to the tribunal. Take a class or something. <laughs> yeah, right. He's resigning. That's, oh. that's what they're saying. Yeah, right. I mean, it's well, not official. The um, the meeting. I don't think it's happen. right that he did that, but I think that's a little bit of a harsh punishment. The meeting is uh, is in twenty minutes from now, and the in the entire country is watching. Man, wow. it's a huge deal. That, that is a huge deal. All right. For people that want more details on that, um, it, you can listen to Noam Layden if you're in the New York area on WABC. If you want to hear Noam at uh, anywhere else in the world, at, at starting at 5 a.m. Eastern, you can listen at WABCradio.com. Let me bring you uh, a little bit of news that it's a story that we've been following. Do you have Netflix? Of course. Yeah. So I have Netflix. I still get the DVDs. Oh, you, you do? You, you, do you, you get can the do that? Well, this is my problem. <laughs> right. I went nuts on this because they're discontinuing it September 29th. So the the Netflix people and, you know, I was thinking of actually staging a big protest in front of Netflix over this. And, you know, I was concerned because no one has the DVD. So far, I've told this to everybody and no one cares that they all their reaction is <laughs> all mine. is all yours. Right. It's, it, I can't believe they still do that. Right. How do you even get a DVD player? So my fear is if I stage one of these rallies in front of Netflix to preserve the DVD by mail service, that no one would come. So be it, yeah. here's what I'm going to do. Uh, and I'm only maybe 40% joking about this. Here's what I want to do. I want to tell people, and I'm going to get our friend Curtis to tell people, that they're going to house migrants at the Netflix <laughs> office right. and then just have people show up <laughs> right. there thinking that they're protesting migrants. Great idea. But I'm going to send out a press release making clear that we're protesting the end of DVDs <laughs> by mail. But anyway, what they announced last week, which I think is kind of cool, is that, you know, I have right now, I was just looking at my queue, I have 433 DVDs in my queue. So I'm not going to be able to watch them all by September 29th, especially because with, you know, a 21-month-old, my wife and I get to watch movies. That's the drop dead almost date, September never. 29th? Yes, okay. right. So they said, we're going to, instead of letting you have your three DVDs, we're going to let you have ten at a time. Wow. Ten. But you have to get them back to us by October 15th. And I thought that was kind of lame also. Now, just came out yesterday, Netflix has reversed its decision and they're going to let you just keep the last 10 DVDs that you have, huh. which is nice. That is. That is nice. Wait, do we know how many people are actually still doing the service? I, I think where it's they about mailed? a million. Come on. You, thought, you think Wait. that's a lot or a little? No, that's a lot. I th no, Wait, a million people will, like, I watched this amazing um, Netflix uh, documentary while I was home on vacation called right. The Staircase, right? Uh, I'm not up on that. And yeah. I would highly recommend to watch it. But by the time you get it and watch it, it'll be like six months from now, and I'll be on to the next thing. I won't want to talk about <laughs> no. it. You'll be so far behind the no, times. But, no, but the if that's on streaming, I can watch it on streaming. Yeah, if so you have the DVD, you can watch DVD or stream it. 
Yeah, but why would you want to wait for the DVD? I don't get well, that. No, you don't. See, the, the, the selection of movies that are available on DVD is so much greater oh, it is. than okay. the selection that's available on streaming. For instance, I have, as I mentioned, 439 movies in my queue. Of those 439, only one, two, three, four, five of them are available on streaming. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah, it's a significantly greater select. That's why I still have it. Well, now you're changing my mind a little that's bit. That's right. I didn't know that. So you'll come to the rally. Yeah. I All won't right. be the second person at the rally. <laughs> can I speak at the rally? <laughs> Absolutely. Okay, we good. need all the help we can <laughs> get. Uh, Noam Layden, thank you sure. for news you can use. We'll see you Monday. Have a good weekend. You too. All right. 800-848-9222 if you want to comment on uh, any any aspect of we did, what we just spoke about. Uh, those of you that are holding, we'll try and get to you. everybody. Steve in Manhattan has been very patiently holding. Hello, Steve. Did anybody speak to that uh, soccer official's wife? You know, And uh, the audience has been very lucky this week. This is the fourth time I'm calling in. And uh, I want to touch on a few things. Like you had the historian on, but he didn't mention the 65 Immigration Act. 65 well, Immigration Act. Well, because we were Act. talking about the election of 1968. Right, but this, this this has a big effect on it too. Sixty five Immigration Act will change the Democratic Party into a hard left party, which is what we're dealing with today. That's why we have all these problems today. And sixty eight is a is a, an election that does transform the country politically. George Wiles runs as a third party candidate. He does right. a lot of damage in the South, but a lot of those voters obviously now become Republicans. Those Democrats now become Republicans, and that has a, a, a big shift in the political arena in America. And then Nixon wins one of the biggest victories in 1972. Then, then they blow it with the, uh, you know, with Watergate and everything was ridiculous. This guy had the, the election wrapped up. But going to 2020, uh, with um, and I'm going to talk about cause in a second, but 2020 election, um, President Trump kept asking the governors of the states that were having the rioting and everything, do you want me, you know, do you want to ask for the National Guard? He's asking these governors of left-wing uh, states who support the rioters. He shouldn't have done that. He should have just nationalized the Guard, Insurrection Act, brought in the National Guard, and stopped all that rioting cold. And the Insurrection Act comes into play because they were rioting, burning courthouses, police precincts. Everyone saw what was going on TV. People were getting killed. What is he asking left-wingers yeah. if you want to bring in the National well, Guard? Yeah, I he mean, should have done that. Yeah, I think, um, I think Tom Cotton actually wrote an op-ed in the New York Times suggesting exactly that, believe it or not. 800-848-9222. Uh, Frankie is in Highland. Hello, Frankie. Yeah, hi, uh, Frank. Um, about the migrants and the refugees, um, I really believe that we can um, stop uh, the, the most famous conflict that we have in Russia and Ukraine. We have, uh, at, in September 30th, we have a permit at a, a place where we're going to do our first concert, and I would like you to be a part of it. Um, uh, and then there's but what, is, what is the concert for, properly. and what would I do? I don't perform. Well, no, you would you would host uh, or say you know uh, uh, say something uh, that that uh, has to do with uh, uh, peace is providence. We can profit profit from peace. Um, we can stop uh, this uh, conflict. We want Russians and and Ukrainians in our country to come together and protest this war. And 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 um, and and create a voice 
voice in America, but is becomes a voice of humanity for humanity. Um, uh, there are so many good um, and 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 serious um, uh, uh, solutions. You want to talk about solutions, and uh, then also I I did talk about. Um, you know, you're yeah, familiar so, with Houston Street and Sixth Avenue. Very, very much so, uh, very much so, uh, Frankie. Is, but do uh, me a favor. If you can email me the details of that concert, I'll put you on hold. Kevin will give you my email address if you need it. And uh, if there's a way I can participate, uh, I'd be happy to. 800-848-9222. We're going to do 15 seconds of fame in a moment. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. A guy that uh, that we miss, who was a regular caller to this program and uh, produced a lot of great music for this program. Really, uh, just a tremendous guy. Hey, um, I did get an opportunity. This is not on Net- Netflix, but it's on um, Hulu. My wife and I did get an opportunity this week to watch the fourth, third, or fourth. I think it's the fourth episode. Of only murders in the building, and I got to tell you, we are enjoying this season immensely. So, if you're a Steve Martin fan, or a Martin Short fan, or a Selena Gomez fan, and you have not seen Only Murders in the Building at all, you, I'm envious of you because you need to watch this. You're going to enjoy this series so much, and particularly this season. Matt Blaze, have you seen this season at all yet? No, I'm so far behind. I haven't seen this season. I still have to watch season two, and now Billions just started again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we I'm on um, that too. we have not yet had an opportunity to start Billions, uh, probably because I'm so busy trying to watch all these DVDs and get them get them back. But uh, we'll see. We'll see what happens. Hey, I know um, I know Robert has been holding. I want I don't want to limit him to 15 seconds. Hello, Robert. Hi, Frank. Thank you. After hearing the debate, I feel DeSantis is doing a lot better than people are giving him credit for. And I have a question because governors are seen as leaders. How many governors went on to become presidents? Um, So it's a good question. I'd have to look that one up. Do you know the answer? No, I don't. Um, I'm not sure how to how to ask it really yeah, and get no, an answer the, on that. Um, uh, Twenty presidents had previously served as governor. Twenty presidents. Wow. All right. Yeah. I thought it would be more. No, I mean twenty out of forty-four. That's uh, that's a lot. Well, I thought more than half would have been. Well, I mean, look, right. you know, you got a lot of other paths to the presidency, right? You got uh, Trump, who was a private citizen. Uh, Obama, who was obviously a senator, Bush was a governor, then uh, Bill Clinton was a governor, 
Then uh, you had uh, George H.W. Bush, who was vice president. Reagan was a governor. Carter was a governor. Ford was vice president. Nixon um, was, you know, a vice president. So there's a lot of paths to the presidency. Uh, Larry is in Brooklyn, also holding a while. Hello, Larry. Hi, Frank. I wanted to comment on the cars because a guy like you appreciates art. Do you realize that that once the, we, we took that engineering step of MPG miles per gallon wind resistance, all the cars started looking the same. When I grew up, cars were a work of art. You walk down the street and you would stop and you would admire each individual car. Now they all look the same. Do you think we gained anything by this engineering step? Because when you look at runners well, like Shakari Richardson, when she runs the hundred yard dash. She wears nails that are about three feet long. She doesn't care about that. I mean, tell me the truth. What do you think about that? You know, I, I'll be honest. I had not thought of that until this very minute. But I think you bring up a very good point, actually. My my uncle – thanks, Larry. My uncle is uh, really into restoring classic cars. He buys them, and he spends a lot of time restoring them. And he's got a, a beautiful classic car. And, I, and, you know, since I've been alive, he's had many classic cars. And it's great. And we go to – I've gone to car shows with him. To see all these old-fashioned cars, and it's really beautiful. And you're right. You're right. Sedans, uh, SUVs, they all do kind of look the same now. That is a very good point, I must say. All right. If you want to stay in touch this week, uh, this weekend, you're certainly welcome to do so via email. Frank.Morano at RedAppleAudioNetworks.com. That's Frank.Morano at RedAppleAudioNetworks.com. You can also find me on the social media app formerly known as Twitter, which is now called X, which I find to be just completely ridiculous, but whatever. Hopefully it works out. At Frank Morano. That's Frank M-O-R-A-N-O. And if you'd like to be heard for 15 seconds, now is the time to do so. The Other Side of Midnight. This is 15 Seconds of Fame. Janine. Droy. What? Who? Droy. No, I'm Roy. Not Droy. Raji. Pretentious supermarkets wholeheartedly welcome inflation in that at 10% greedily they raise their prices by 50 to 100% without raising workers' wages. Thank you. Russ. Steve of Manhattan leaves out the fact that the 1965 Immigration Act was passed to correct the 1924 Immigration Act, which was passed to prevent any more immigration from half my relatives who were Eastern European Jews. But thanks for exposing a national audience to Steve. Please keep moronic Mike off. David. Yes, uh, Frank, you should rethink going to that concert. And if you do, you should sing the Wiener song to cheer those people up. Thank you. Roger. Yes, that, that. Joe. Hey, Frank. It's uh, Joe Francogma. I want to shout out my dad in heaven. He would have been 85 years old today, and I miss him a lot, and I love him. Amen. That's great. Rocco. Sins a moron, sins a moron. Sins. Mike. Morning, Frank. I'll be the third person at the Netflix rally. I'll bring bagels. Ask Noam what kind of bagels he likes. I will, and I will report back. Janine. 
Uh, did you ever find out to figure out uh, why our uh, Senator Joe uh, Lieberman won't be on your program? He will. He will be on. He's been on before. We'll get him back. Roy. When you go to the doctor like what I do, I always have the doctor check me with two fingers. You know why? So I get a second opinion. But when I go to my one doctor, I always take his word for it. My proctologist. Rocco. Sid is the king of all media. The new king. Hail the king. Inside man. Everything. And Gravesend. Sid is the king. Russell. Oh, baby, nobody can stop my Orioles, man. Nobody, 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 nobody. All right, thank you, Russell. I love hearing you through that uh, crackling. Uh, that place, what's the story with that crackling? We, 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 we didn't have that started. old. Yeah, all right, well. It just started, I guess. All right, I guess it's somebody else's problem now. <laughs> um, hopefully it's not here by Monday. All right, Monday morning, we've got some fun stuff coming your way. I am. Uh, I don't want to get ahead of myself by telling you about stuff before it's confirmed but it's going to be a show worth listening to and uh you can stay in touch facebook.com slash morano fan frank morano good day this is Greg Kelly for Priority Gold. What does it mean to be America's precious metals dealer? It means that you're in touch with the hearts and minds of those who love this country, value our freedom, and want to protect the future. Priority Gold is that precious metals dealer. They've helped thousands of Americans back their retirement with solid gold and silver. Call Priority Gold at 888-506-6439. Receive free shipping, free storage, a free investment guide, and one of the best purchase experiences in the industry. Call now or go to PriorityGold.com.